Jimmy, I know you're not a religious guy, but I could use some serious prayers right now. This is the day I've been dreading all year. After months of enduring all these Showa Gamera movies and all the other busy work and shenanigans the board has put us through, we come to the Guardian of the Universe's absolute lowest point. Don't let the meme of Gamera holding a Shin Godzilla sign fool you. This movie... Oh, good lord. This movie. Jimmy, Danny DeMana could be Superman with a beta capsule and still not be able to save this movie for me. Kaiju Quarantine 2 was only one weekend, and I had all my podcast friends and then some to help me get through it. And you had some Jack Daniels in your corner for some extra help. Sure, but as I was... Who's here? Good morning, Nate. Miss Perkins? Yes, the island's resident... What was your little nickname for me? Uh, the Princess of PR? Yes, I was a little offended at first when you said that on air, but now, kind of like the sound of it. I mean, could you at least tell me your first name? All I know is it starts with K, as your signature on the board's Twitter tells everyone. That's... need to know, and you don't. All right, Miss Blue-Haired Admiral Holdo. I don't mean to be rude. Like when I was your date at the Gamera Gala back in January? You're lucky the only thing that happened to you was getting stuffed into a Megalon crate. How many times do I have to say I'm sorry? Just be glad my father, it, Lex, wasn't around. He'd have shown you his sword collection up close and personal. Oh, I don't have the time or energy for... I knew you looked tired, Nate. In fact, I've noticed you've been sluggish the last few weeks. Yeah, thanks to all that dang overtime your bosses keep giving me. And your hard work to find a better way forward hasn't gone unnoticed. That's why I brought you this. A wildcat energy drink? Yep, I knew you'd need a pick-me-up. I usually drink kaiju energy. That stuff's sugar-laced garbage. This is all-natural B vitamins and electrolytes. It's practically lightning in a can. I always drink it before my morning jog. What's with the pink can? It's a new flavor, pomegranate. Not bad. And it matches your jumpsuit. Don't remind me. <laughs> I kind of like pink, though. Now, I'm here because I scored you a last-second interview that would be perfect for your show today. What? An interview? Mm-hmm. Someone I've admired for a long time for her strength, beauty, and dance moves. Why am I afraid to ask who it is? Space Woman Kalara. That's why. Kalara and her friend Marsha and Miton are the most unsung of Henshin heroes. Without their help, Gamera wouldn't have been able to defeat Xanon. That's debatable. 
their transformations, costumes, and poses. They've been an inspiration to me for years. As amusing as your fangirling is, that brings up a good question. What did you do before coming to the island? I... I... Not important. Ugh, fine. But why do you admire the space women so much? As superheroes go, they hardly did anything during the Xanon invasion. Bite your tongue. If not for Kalarn, Gamera still... would have been... mind-controlled? by the Xanth captain. And now poor Are you okay? I'm fine, I'm fine. Like I said, a powerful superhero with wild gestures, a henshin pose, and a fabulous costume. That speaks to me. Sure. So, are there certain questions the board wants me to ask her? Oh, this was my idea, not the board's. Really? Yes, I confess, as you say, I'm a bit of a raving fangirl, but it only made sense to interview her on your episode for Gamera Super Monster. The board, well, it took a little persuasion, but they agreed when I told them it'd be great publicity for the island. I see. So, is she coming here? <laughs> of course not. She's busy fighting crime and saving the world and all that fun stuff. She could barely carve out five or ten minutes into her busy schedule for a call-in. Alrighty then. But I am trying to make arrangements for her and the other spacewoman to visit the island. I'm sure Gamera misses them. Probably. What'd the board say about that idea? Nothing so far. I'll follow up with them tomorrow. Or not. Depends on how busy I am. But speaking of superheroes, I'm meeting with your sister. Pseudo-sister. <laughs> Jimmy will admit how he survived the war in space before you ever called Jessica your sister. I feel sorry for both of you. Why? I... Uh, I don't like seeing brothers and sisters fight. It's just something she shared with me since I took her under my wing when she moved to the island. Duly noted. What else do you need to tell me? That's all. Keep finding a better way forward, Nate. And you too, James. Avita Singh. <sighs> it's amazing I haven't taken up drinking yet. Although, it's weird that she seems to be talking the board into doing things. You heard influencer static on your headphones? Why didn't you grab and smash them like you did with Jessica? That's true. The influencers could be in her jewelry, implanted under her skin, and her pen. That's terrifying. Plus, for a corporate woman, she does look like she could take you in a fight. I'll text what we learned to Jessica on the direct line phone she got from Gary. That might come in handy when she meets Miss Perkins today. In the meantime, as Queen sang, the show must go on! Mm. 
Live from the KIJU studios in beautiful Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 46, Daniel DeMana versus Gamera Super Monster. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through Tokusatsu. I am your heavily burdened and wearied host, the film curator here on Monster Island, Nate Marchand. Yes, Jimmy, my intrepid producer, who I'm surprised is not a little bit less intrepid today. This is a day I have been dreading for a long, long time. All year, in fact. And I'm not even sure that my guest today will be able to help me out. But in case you were wondering, my guest today, making his grand return after a long absence, and I'm surprised I haven't had him on more often, he is the author and creator of the Godzilla Novelization Project, a renowned actor and the scalper's bane, Danny DeMana. Hello there, Nate. Scalper's bane at your service. You're sounding a little worn out there, bud. Uh, well, the uh, actually, before you came here, I was visited by Miss Perkins, and she gave me a new energy drink that she thought would be helpful because she said I be, she says I've looked sluggish for a while, and I don't think the caffeine has kicked in yet. Yes, yes, I can. Uh, I can tell you definitely need. Um, you need to avoid the decaf. I think you need to get something. What's going on, dude? What's with you know? Why the long face, bro? Well, there's a lot of things. For one thing, I've been working many long, long hours here on the island. The board is keeping me busy, but there's also all the other shenanigans that have been going on all year. And of course, the big reason why is because it is still the year of. Camera. Dr. Forrester is kind of a jerk and fra- <clears throat> Sorry. Sorry, I, I got a little sucked in I there. I know. And honestly, I'd rather do that sing-along than watch this movie. I'm not sure even Joel and the bots, or even Mike and the bots, I don't think anybody on MST3K could have helped this movie. I'm surprised they didn't riff this one, because it's just asking for it. But I have a feeling this would be a kind of like, i trying to remember which one that was, uh, Hercules Against the Moon then, where even they were like, I can't do this! I quit! Sandstorm, deep hurting. Yes, that is this episode for me. That is today for me. It is deep hurting. This is your deep hurting Gamera movie right here. Yes, this one. This is the one that breaks Nathan Marchand. Yes, it's because it's Gamera Super Monster or Super Monster Gamera. It goes by both things. I don't care what order the words are in the title. It's the same thing. The same thing. And I know you told me, you told me before you came here today, Danny, that your goal was to defend this movie. And my response to you is, I don't care if you're Superman with a beta capsule. I don't think anyone could save this movie. I it just, no. Wow. No. Well, first of all, ouch. And second of all, I'm not here to necessarily, well, I am, I am, I'm here definitely to, de- to kind of give this movie a bit of a defense. Listen, I'm going to level with you. This is a movie I do not hate. In fact, I quite enjoy it. In fact, I'm going to go as far as to say that I love this movie. Oh, really? I think it's, yeah. 
I tr- I truly do enjoy this movie. Jimmy wants you to explain this hot take. I'm not talking to Jimmy, Nate. What? what? And Jimmy, and no, and Jimmy knows why. Okay, what's going on? Because Jimmy didn't say anything to me before we started broadcasting. That is so Jimmy. That is so Jimmy. Listen, I don't even, I'm trying to be positive here. I don't even know if I wanted to get into this. Yeah, well, I mean, really what, what would you, like, you're the unmitigated, un- unabashed, whatever, positivity machine? I forget exactly the, what the title was. The un- un- unabashed positivity machine? Un- not unmitigated. That doesn't quite work. <laughs> Either way, I generally try to be a positive guy. There's so much negativity out there in the world that I certainly don't need to add to it, nor would I want to. And that was my goal when I woke up a couple of days ago with the intent of coming to Monster Island. An invitation to talk about Gamera Super Monster, a movie that is not good. It's not great. It's, you know, but I'm no fool. I adore this movie, but I know it's not good. So I'm not I'm not completely deluded. Don't worry. But it was my intent and still is to basically give this movie a little bit of context in hopes that it might explain some of the reasons why it is the way that it is. But I got to say, I had my, um, oh my God, I don't know if I want to talk about this, but I'm going to. So do you remember last episode I was here, King Kong 05? Yes. Do you remember how I got to Monster Island? uh, The Pteranodon bot, which at some point I kind of want to merchandise. I want an artist rendering of this so I can merchandise the snot out of it. Yeah, I have some slightly different opinions on the old Pteranodon bot, the one that Jimmy flew me to the island on, the one that definitely got my acrophobia working up a little bit, and the one that he promised me, promised me, Jimbo, that you would not use again to get me to the island. And what was waiting for me out in front of my apartment at 5.30 in the morning? I think we both know. Except Jimmy was not there this time to do the piloting? Oh, no, no, no. He was there. Oh, he was. He even padded the seat again, just like he did the first time. It was like nothing had changed. It was like deja flipping vu. It was the same thing. And I even looked at him and I said, really? And he said, and I said, yeah, no kidding. But I got on anyway. I mean, how else am I supposed to get to the island, right? Jimmy told me he wouldn't do this again. He knows I don't like the way he flies. I love the Pteranodon robot, dude. I love that thing. It's so cool. It's silly, but I love it. But not when Jimmy flies it. But I had no choice. So I jumped on board and we started our incredibly long, slightly soggy flight over the Pacific. Oh, yes. During which time Jimmy decided it would be fun to fly right through a storm. Oh, a a tropical storm. Like you ever see Kong Skull Island? Probably not. Well, there's a moment in the movie where there's this big storm that goes around the island with thunder and lightning and a lot of wind and Samuel L. Jackson barely makes it. Yes, (laughs) it's cute. It's cute. Hollywood is cute. No, this was a real Pacific storm. And I said, hey, Jimmy, how about you try to not go through this? And he promised me he was a professional pilot. Jimmy from NASA, you know, he can fly through anything. He can fly anything. Air Force guy, space pilot, engineer extraordinaire, space warrior, all that fun stuff. I chose to believe it, Nate. So with my arms clenched firmly around his midsection. I don't know how he was able to breathe. We dove into the storm and, uh, well, I'm just going to cut right to the chase. I fell off the Tranodon robot. Oh, mother tra- Jimmy. Okay, fine. I'll let Danny finish his story, but you and I need to have a talk. What have I told you about endangering the gas? <sighs> hmm. You know, I'd, uh, I, I'd be a little, a little bit easier on him if he'd actually noticed that I'd fallen off. 
and it actually made an attempt to dive bomb through the storm to save me, but no. I think I even saw him talking while I was falling, like he thought I was still there. It's funny now. It wasn't funny then. Jimmy, I, don't... I told you to put seatbelts on that thing. Why haven't you done it? Okay, fine. There's a seatbelt for you, but what about your passengers? I'm just... Mm. We are going to get letters. I'm going to have to talk to Raymond Martin about this after the show. In fact, be prepared, Danny, for Raymond Martin to come talk to you because this is this is a liability issue. Yeah, again, positivity guy here, but uh, I'm not going to lie. Being dropped from uh, several thousand feet into the raging Pacific Ocean from a guy who fought in wars but can't fly a metal pteranodon, I'm just a little miffed. Rightfully and I, so. I, I, I'm sorry, Jimbo. I know we've had our differences before, but this is this. You dropped me into the ocean, Jimmy. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to make you a deal, Jimmy. I'm a fair guy. I know we've had our differences, but I truly do value the parts of our friendship that don't involve me falling into the ocean. So your apology, Jimmy, is sweet and it is appreciated. I will accept your apology, but on one condition. We're going to have a little fun this episode, Jimmy. You paying attention? I know you are. All right, here we go. Here are the stakes. We're going to do this episode on Gamera Super Monster. Yes. And you only get three, count them, Jimmy, three opportunities to pipe up with your usual banter. It can be whatever you want, your usual snarky self. But if you so much as wiggle your lips to open them for a fourth comment, your boy Danny gets to fly home on a 100% free, 100% owned by me, Pteranodon robot. Seriously, Jimmy, you're agreeing to this? Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Well, you two have fun with that. Good luck, Jimmy. <laughs> oh, apparently he's not hes not super worried because he's got two giant robots in his garage right now. Surprised he didn't fly you here with one of those. Yeah, I am too, Nate. You know what? We're going to see if Jimmy can do the unprecedented. Keep his Imperial probe droid lips shut for the next however long it takes for me and you to talk about Gamma Super Monster. Yeah. Let's see if he can do it. Be very strategic with those, Jimmy. Very, very strategic. I'm just saying. Well, another thing that we are going to be doing today as part of this is our Toku topic, which will be the rise and fall of Daie Film, the studio that made the Gamma movies, among other things. But they don't get talked about quite as much as, say, Toho, despite the fact that they made the Gamera movies. But the thing is that they made a lot of other stuff, too. And I think their history is worth discussing because it's a wee bit zany. Very much so. Indeed. Oh, we have an interview today? That's good to know. We're moving on. But wait, did you just blow one of your three on this? Okay, Jimmy, I can't read lips nearly as well as other people, but I'm thinking you're trying to say it doesn't count? Sorry, Jimbo. It totally counts. That is strike one, my friend. Uh, strike one. I'm getting closer to that Pteranodon robot. Oh, goodness gracious. Anyway, let's move on to the entertaining info dump that Mr. Strike One has written for us because I'm contractually obligated to read it. For the, what, sixth time, Gamera is the heroic and self-sacrificial friend to all children and defender of Earth in the form of a stiff parade float. 
He battles various monsters through the power of stock footage to repel the Xanon invasion. However, he is briefly mind-controlled by the aliens and made to attack Japan, again, using weaponized stock footage. Xanon employs multiple monsters to invade Earth, sending them one at a time to destroy cities or kill Gamera in a series of deja vu battles. These include Gauss, a feral and bloodthirsty bat-like kaiju, the hungry and malevolent Zigra, a shark-like alien kaiju, the cruel and tyrannical Virus, a squid-like alien, Jiger, an ancient and vicious demon of legend from the continent of Mu. Giron, a vicious and cruel blade-headed monster guarding the Xanon monster base on a distant planet. And Barugan, an aggressive and malicious giant reptile. Kalara is the heroic and kind leader of the Space Women, a trio of alien superheroines taking refuge on Earth after Xanon destroyed their homeworld. She protects Keiichi from harm and attempts to thwart the invasion, presumably to save the planet from the same fate. Marsha and Miton are her equally heroic and kind fellow spacewomen who also wish to protect Earth, but they end up mostly standing around. The conniving and obedient Garuge is an agent sent by Xanon to kill the spacewomen and Gamera and unleash the monsters, thereby paving the way for the invasion, but she constantly fails. The movie's Kenny is the precocious and lonely Keiichi who spends his time obsessing over pet turtles and playing an electric keyboard while pining for a sister. This leads to him getting mixed up with the space women as they defend Earth. The Xanon captain is a cruel yet, for whatever reason, strangely merciful alien leading the invasion on Earth using a not-star destroyer and an army of stock footage, I mean monsters, in order to enslave humanity. While Keiichi's story is at first separate, once he gets involved with the space women, the human and kaiju plotlines are unified. The space women especially have their story intertwined with the kaiju storyline since very little is seen of them outside of halting Xanon's invasion. Xanon is the problem despite his use of stock footage, er, monsters, as weapons. Gamera appears and attacks Gauss, which ends with him dragging the bat-like kaiju by the throat into an erupting Mount Fuji. After a battle where Gamera jams a boulder in Ziggur's nose and plays his theme song on the alien shark's back like a xylophone, Gamera kills Ziggur by burning him alive with his flame breath. Gamera flies Virus into the upper atmosphere, freezing him, and lets the alien monster fall into the ocean, where he dissolves. Gamera then battles Jiger and pummels the beast to death. Xanon attaches a mind control device to Gamera and sends him to attack Japan. Kalara flies to Gamera and gets Xanon to blast the device from the big turtle's neck. Gamera flies to Xanon's monster base on a distant planet, and a missile is launched at him and Giron, but is cut in half by Giron's knife head. One half hits a building, and the other is intercepted by Gamera. The turtle kaiju throws it into Giron's shuriken port and blasts it with flames, detonating it. Gamera drags Barogun underwater to drown him. Garuge, having seen the error of her ways, lets herself be blasted by Xanon to save the space women's lives. The problem is ultimately solved when Gamera makes an awkward suicide attack against Xanon's not-star destroyer, destroying it and saving Earth. The script by Nissan Takahashi is a simple, perhaps overly simple, story that, despite its decent-sized cast, has only a few truly important characters. It unfortunately has a lot of padding thanks to the stock footage. Budget figures are unavailable for this movie, but it was clearly made on pocket change and lint. Most of the special effects scenes were stock footage from the previous Gamera movies. 
While these varied greatly in quality, they were still superior to the new footage. The new Gamera prop was stiff and lifeless. The scenes of the space women flying and their vehicles transforming were filmed using the Datsu ECG system, originally used several years earlier in Message from Space, and it makes Super Monster look like a low-budget public access channel movie. The only thing that looks decent is the Xanon ship, and that has the unfortunate problem of looking perilously close to lawsuit-worthy for George Lucas. This is a light and often childish movie with hardly any gravity despite the looming threat of Xanon. With its spaceships, monsters, and superheroines, it's a science fiction movie that leans heavily on fantastical elements. The only thing remotely experimental about this movie is the inclusion of superheroes, which was obviously done to tap into the increasing popularity of such TV shows at the time. Otherwise, it plays it safe by recycling elements from the previous movies in more obvious ways than others. Super Monster reinforces the style of basically every Gamera movie that came before with its story, characters, and stock footage. However, it could be said that the Space Women are an expansion of style as this remains the only Gamera movie to feature superheroes. The movie was made in the hopes of bringing the barely resurrected Daie out of bankruptcy. To that end, it was intended to entertain the usual kaiju-loving child audience, and possibly the dads who came to see hot women in spandex. Box office figures for Super Monster are unavailable, but it was a flop when released in Japan March 20th, 1980. The dubbed version began airing a few years later in the United States on, of all things, MTV. It has a 3.8 with 764 ratings on IMDb, which surprisingly is slightly higher than Gamera vs. Zygris 3.6. Most Gamera and Kaiju fans don't care for it. Aside from some English language title cards, the movie is unchanged in the dubbed version. There aren't many forces at play in this movie. Keiichi's mother doubts his claims about seeing Gamera or that his pet turtle talks to him. Slavery and freedom are at odds because the former is Zanin's intention for humanity. Zanin's tyranny constantly clashes with Garuge's failures. Zanin briefly robs Gamera of his free will. That's about it. There are a few themes in this movie. Keiichi despises Garuge for lying to him. The space women fled to Earth after Xanon destroyed their world, making them sympathetic refugees. Having integrated into human society, they seek to defend their new home from invaders. Freedom is implicitly presented as better than slavery. Similarly, free will is preferred to mind control. Keiichi obeys his mother to release his pet turtle despite his objections. Gamera's kamikaze run on Xanon is presented as his last self-sacrificial act to save mankind. I fulfilled my contractual obligations, now let's get the Toku talk over with. Danny boy! We just got back from the screening room. This was the second time this week I had to watch this movie in preparation for today's broadcast. And while it was going on, I was struck with something rather profound. I realized there are three questions that have plagued mankind from the very beginning of history, perhaps even before recorded history. And you know what those questions are, Danny boy? I couldn't begin to venture a guess. One would be, what is the meaning of life? Now, some would tell you it's 42, but that's a whole other story. Another one would be, why do bad things happen to good people? And you know what the third question is? Why does Super Monster Gamera exist? Deep, man. 
deep. <sighs> well, the good news is I might have some answers for you. I mean, you're obviously distressed. I mean, there's so much sweat coming out of your forehead right now. It's yeah. kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, can you see it's it's throbbing just a, just a tiny yeah. bit yeah just, yeah uh, I, there's I, like I, some... I don't quite have the eye twitch no i don't quite have the eye twitch going but it's, it's yeah but throbbing. your hand is shaking a little bit dude yeah, i mean just, maybe... just a tiny bit maybe that's maybe the, the caffeine <laughs> finally kicking in i don't know. maybe the caffeine wasn't such a good idea but maybe it wasn't but 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 here we are here we are and you know what's kind of sad danny what's really the... sad that I'm sitting over here grinning ear to ear because I just got finished watching Gamera's Super Monster? You sadistic word I can't say on the air because we're a family <laughs> show. Um, oh, don't, don't, Jimmy, don't waste strike two over there. Anyway, on paper, I should love this movie because it has three of my favorite things in it. It has spaceships, superheroes, and kaiju. But guess what? I don't. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at your pain and suffering, Nate, but your pain and suffering is hilarious. No, 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 no. You're starting, I, uh, Danny, be careful. You're starting to remind me a little bit of a mad scientist who works here on the island, and that guy's crazy enough. Are you talking about the mushroom dude? Yeah, the mushroom dude. Mm -hmm. Why would you compare me to that guy? He's uh, Because he's you're awesome. being a little more sadistic and quite mad than usual. Oh, I'm being mad, am I? Now, I uh, I don't mean to come off as rude or uh, perhaps insane. I mean, I literally came in here and said I really liked this movie. So you could be forgiven for thinking I'm a touch off my rocker. But I, I don't know. I feel like I might be able to not persuade, but at least explain my point of view oh, as I we go along. I certainly hope so, because it actually was revealed. That we hadn't talked about this before, but in the previous episode with Eli Harris, he mentioned that we have little laptops here in the broadcast room where people can reference their notes if need be. And so I'm looking at mine, and I'm going to be honest with you, most of my notes on the actual movie are either rants or riffs. <laughs> I mean, that is kind of the logical go-to for this film, at least in the United States. It's got such a reputation on it, and some of it is oh, very, very deserved. Its reputation preceded it. It, it, it preceded it, it, Before yes. I actually watched this movie for the first time, not long after I came to Monster Island, all I knew going into it was that it was, to put it politely, not good. I was not prepared for what I got. Now, it might surprise you to hear me say this, but if I look at the kaiju genre as a whole, I wouldn't say this is the worst one ever of all time. I would definitely put it on the list, but I don't think it's the worst ever of all time. However, if I limit it to just Japan, it might be number one or at least very close. To explain how this movie is, let me present to you my little theory about how this movie came about. I honestly think that this movie was birthed when some poor, overworked Dye intern was running around in the studio and he had multiple scripts in his hand that he was trying to deliver to whatever was going on at the time. And one of them was for a new Gamera movie because somebody thought, we needs a new Gamera. And then another one was for some cheesy superhero movie, which... I can totally get behind that. And then another one, because this is what you did in the late 70s and early 80s. Come on, Star Crash is a thing. 
and Jimmy's docudrama is a thing. And then there was Message from Space, you know, because so all the big studios in Japan were making their Star Wars knockoff. So I guess Daiei decided, hey, we should make a Star Wars knockoff too. And then you know what happened? That poor overworked intern tripped and fell and all of those script pages went flying and then rained down upon him like overly large snowflakes. And he had a little panic attack and he started trying to gather them all up and got all of those scripts mixed together, gave that to Noriaki Yuasa, who read it, thought it was the most brilliant thing he'd ever seen, and decided to film it. Wow. I, um, whew, that is quite the theory there, Mr. Marchand. Yeah, because this, find- this basically feels like three movies. It's three movies that are squished together. And most, well, of the, and most of one of those movies is stock footage. Well, two things. First of all, I have to compliment you on that incredibly intricate, slightly long-winded, and very detailed theory. That was uh, very creative. Welcome and, to um, story time yeah. with Nate. <laughs> slightly crazy story time with Nate. Uh, yeah, I think some of that madness that you're radiating is having an effect. Or maybe it's just well, this movie. G- I think this movie made me snap, man. I'm starting to think that too, but here's where I'll go into my side of the story, because as creative as that very long detailed theory was, I'm here to tell you that everything you just said was wrong. I'm sure it's wrong. It's far more entertaining. It's definitely, I don't know. It's definitely entertaining. But if you want to talk entertaining, the story behind how Gamera Super Monster came to be, no more joking aside, no more being uh, slightly mad on my end for realsies this time. The story behind how Gamera Super Monster came to be is... Please enlighten me. Enlighten all of us. Yes, it is easily just as interesting, if not more interesting. I feel like I know which side of that you'll fall on than the film itself. It is a crazy story that goes in a, a bunch of different directions, and it involves pretty much everything from the fall of the Japanese film industry to the scary slash epic movie franchise. And I'm not kidding about that. We're going to break it up a little bit as we go through the episode, because I think the best way to describe Gamera Super Monster and go about attempting to explain its existence is to kind of just go through the movie. Yeah, you know, and uh, talk about typically it. my notes are arranged chronologically with the movie, so maybe that's just what we should do. Before we start talking about the movie, we can't. We have to talk about why the movie. Why yes. does this movie that's exist? That's why I said, please, why, answer that question. All right, strap in. That's, now that, it's Dan- that, that, now that, it is Danny's story time. Yes, All right, so here's what actually happened. Now, the thing about Gamera Super Monster is that there is not a whole lot of information about the film that's been published in English, really anywhere. And a lot of the information out there about the film is based entirely on incorrect assumptions. So there's a lot of misinformation about this movie. And we're going to kind of, we'll go through that as we talk about this. But the beginnings of Gamera Super Monster can be traced back to the ending of the 1960s. And we're going to talk about this more in depth with the Toku topic once we get to that at the end of the episode. But I'm just going to kind of jump in because I guess the best way to say it is that this story begins where the Toku topic, the rise and fall of Dai Studios, ends. This is the sequel to that Toku topic. So it'll all make sense once we go back and talk about Dae and who they were and what they were and how they ended. But it's no secret to most kaiju fans who are listening that Dae stopped existing for all intents and purposes throughout the 1970s. They existed pretty much in name only. Basically, what happened was Dae went bankrupt in 1971. But the problem is they were hemorrhaging money years before that. 
the problem was the name of Dae's game at this point was Keeping Up Appearances. They didn't want the world to know that they were in financial trouble. Basically, what happened was part of their, I guess the way to say it would be like their scheme to kind of convince the world, to convince their audience and convince their employees that everything was fine, was to just keep making movies, even though they did not have the money to make those movies. And as part of that keeping up appearances thing to keep making movies in 1971, after production on Gamera versus Zegra had wrapped, an eighth Gamera film was planned within yes. the studio. Gara Sharp. Wyvern. Actually, Garasharp, that's a bit of a myth. Garasharp actually came later on in the lexicon of lost Gamera movies, but the Gamera film that was to be 1972's Gamera film was to star a multi-headed monster called the Wyvern, which reportedly, even though no script was written for the film, the suit was apparently built. Unfortunately, and again, we'll talk about this later, that suit, if it was constructed, it was surely destroyed, along uh -huh. with every other Gamera thing ever. But again, that's at the end of the episode. There's a tease for you, if ever there was one. But when Daie announced their bankruptcy in 1971, that movie wasn't going to happen. But here's the deal. The movie was planned to happen, so almost all of the contracts for the production of the film had been signed already, including Noriaki Uwasa returning as director, Masaichi Nagata, the president of Daie, was going to return to produce. And even Shunsuke Kikuchi, who'd done the music for the previous three Gamera films, was supposed to come back and score the film. They were all on tap for Gamera number eight, and they signed their contracts. But when Daie went poof, those guys assumed that the, the, that project was never going to happen. So Yuasa transitioned into television, and uh, most of them transitioned into television. But here's where things get interesting, because after Daie crumbled, about three years later, 1974, Tokuma Shoten, Tokuma Publishing, purchased Daie and all of its assets, with the notable exception of Zatoichi, which uh, Shintaro Katsu had actually taken after Daie's collapse, and he brought Zatoichi over to Toho, and they kept, remember, they were like 20-plus Zatoichi movies by this mm -hmm. point, so they started making them over at Toho, but Daie's assets were basically absorbed into Tokuma Shoten. And this is where things get really, really crazy, because in the late 1970s, Yasuyoshi Tokuma, founder of the studio, the studio was uh, Tokuma, it was uh, not studio, but the company was founded in 1954. He made an interesting discovery in the late 70s. He discovered all of those signed contracts for an eighth Gamera film. He basically looked at them and said, well, I am, I basically own Dae and Gamera and everything they made now to a degree. And he basically assumed that he now had the rights to make the eighth Gamera film and the contracts had been signed. Oh, and, no. and so he called all of the people that had signed their contracts and said, yo, we're getting the gang back together. We're doing Gamera eight after all these years. <laughs> so uh, Masai, he was saying, hey, we're getting the band back together. We're getting but it's not the, the band actual band. Back it's the terrible cover band. <laughs> Ouch. It's the terrible tribute band. Got it. Yeah, but this is what happened. So all of those guys, including Kikuchi and Nagata, they all, and of course, Noriaki Uwasa, they came back into the fold at the invitation, well, not invitation. They basically called them up and said, hey, you're doing this uh, to, um, from Tokuma-san. Meanwhile, Uwasa is probably thinking, why didn't that burn with, the, with everything else? Again, preview of things to come. Yes, yes. And Yuasa has an interesting part to play, actually, in that interesting, dark, rather fiery period of Dai's history. And again, that's a tease. But I guess the what happened was all these guys came back to the hollow shell of Dai, whatever was left of it. And long story short, Tokuma-san said, you have $3 and whatever lint is at the bottom of my pocket. Make an ambitious special effects movie. With 300 yen. 
Yeah, yeah, something like that. And Yuasa-san was kind of mortified at this. Remember, he called Gamera his son. Mm-hmm. He loved Gamera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was now, invested I got that in from, Gamera. I, I got that from my research. In fact, yes. you know what? Here, I'll share that with you. Here's what he said. Here, this will complement what you're saying very well. New Die, I didn't think of Super Monster as a new film and just wanted to cut the old footage together. I grieved for my son Gamera. It was a very strange fate. It was a very strange fate for my son Gamera. What a sad thing to say. Great quote, sad quote, but very, very true. Basically, took him a show 10 because let's be honest here, there was no Die. Daie was just in it, basically whatever uh, Tokuma wanted to like get the nostalgia going. He would slap the old Daie logo on the beginning of a movie, but Daie didn't make the movies. Daie didn't exist. I mean, their stuff was owned. And I guess the closest approximation I could come up with is uh, now that Disney owns 20th Century Fox, it would be like if they put the 20th Century fanfare at the beginning of their Disney Star Wars movies. It's just for show. You know, it's a logo. It doesn't mean anything. So when you watch Gamera Super Monster... We're talking about Star Wars. Anyway. We are. But when you watch Gamera Super Monster and you see the Dai logo at the beginning, that's that's a lie. <laughs> like It's just there for show. And Tokuma Shoten didn't even release it. It's a Shochiku film, technically. Shochiku released a Tokuma production that was made using the Dai name and weird contracts. That is how this movie came to be. Noriaki Iwasa went to Tokuma and said, I can't do a movie like this with the amount of money you're giving me. And Tokuma's response was paraphrasing here, but basically we own everything Gamera. We own all the movies. We own all the footage. Just use the footage we already have and give me a movie. And they did everything they could with the limited resources, or I guess the best way to say the resource, the stock footage that they were given. And they did their best, but they were screwed from the beginning. This was a cash grab. This was, hey, remember Gamera from a few years ago? Ha ha, come see our movie. It was cheap. It was lazy. But I argue that the people who actually made the film, who did all the hard work on it, aren't to blame. It's as good as it is, quote unquote, good as it is because of their hard work. But it was pretty much messed up from the beginning. It was never going to be a good movie. Yeah, this is not a Godzilla versus Megalon where you had talented people who were basically given a little money and no time to produce something. Although that was in part because they didn't know what to do. Mm hmm. So it was a victim of circumstance. I think you and I have talked about that before. Godzilla vs. Megalon is a victim of circumstance. This isn't even, I know a lot of people compare these two. This is not all Monsters Attack. This is not Godzilla's Revenge. No, no, it is is not. not. It is such an easy surface level. It is is very surface level, but there's a major difference here. Here's the difference. The stock footage in All Monsters Attack is used strategically to advance an actual story. And there was plenty of new footage, not plenty, but you know, you know what I mean. There was a fair amount of new footage that was filmed and it contributed to that story and was actually well-made. That can't be said about this movie. I'm pretty sure they edited together a nice little previously on or best of Gamera collection and then tried to force a story around it. That's pretty much what happened. Uh, Nissan Takahashi basically only had to write human and space woman drama for this thing. And his goal when he did this was basically like, okay, well, the, the monster footage is locked in. It's already been shot. 
in order to get people to actually come to this thing, I want to do a couple of things. One, I want to present characters that kids will like. Remember, we are adults here sitting here talking about a children's movie. So there's only so harsh I feel like we can be on what is something that was meant for little kids. You know what I mean? This is a this is a children's movie at its heart. And that's what Noriaki Iwasa did best was he made sweet films for children. And I'd argue that this film succeeds in that because, yes, again, I'm no fool. I know this is not a good movie, but for me, what makes a movie truly objectively not a great movie is like the worst sin a film can commit is being boring. And this movie does not bore me. I don't know. I kind of thought the stock footage was boring because I'm thinking, I've seen this already. In fact, you're just reminding me of the last eight months. <laughs> Why? That's the that's a common, and especially for you since you've been stuck on an island forced to watch these movies. But for me, I just never get tired of seeing those. I mean, it's like rewatching the movie and digest the, all the movies I love from the Showa era in digest form. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just an excuse yeah. to sit down and watch, you know, a <laughs> Giron get his head blown off again and watch Zegra get his back played again. And oh, it's with, just, uh, it's with just different music yeah. this time, but it, which yes. still begs the question was that breaking the fourth wall? I don't know. You say all of that, but according to our friend John LeMay, okay, you're saying this was a cash grab made by people who love this stuff. Well, according to John, it was Yuasa's idea, we're jumping ahead a little bit, to kill Gamera in this movie because he didn't think any more could be done with him. So it seems that a is... little weird that you make a cash grab and then you immediately end the cash grabbing. Well, there's a reason for that too. And John is 100% right. Yuasa-san, I mean, this is jumping ahead. Are we going to jump ahead a little, talk about the end, or should we wait? Let's just start going through. Let's just start. Let's going start going. Through. Let's start at the so, beginning and go we'll, we'll start this. I don't usually do it chronologically, but we'll do it chronologically today. I just won't use all of my notes. I'll try to use only the best of my notes. So we have the beginning that I don't know what it thinks. I don't know if it's supposed to be like the beginning of an educational film on astronomy or Star Trek, Star Wars or whatever. Jimmy likes it because he thinks all the artwork in that is, is pretty. And I will admit. It's pretty. But then he says, once it becomes bootleg Star Wars, he turns against it. And I can understand because, you know, his life is basically bootleg Star Wars. Oh, Jimmy, don't, 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 don't blow, don't blow one of your interruptions there. Okay. Yeah, he got yeah. close that time. Yeah. He got close I, there, Jimbo. Yeah, I'm watching you. I saw you. it going. I saw it going there. But that's something that we have to talk about. Let's talk about Xanon. For one thing, I don't know if Xanon is the captain of the ship, the name of the ship, the planet he comes from. It's like Zigra all over again because they have, use I the same an name for, for everything. I have an answer. What's the answer? The answer is yes. That was helpful. Anyway, so we have Xanon. It is clearly a Star Destroyer, a slightly modified Star Destroyer. In fact, John LeMay even said, I'm surprised that they did something like this when Daae was basically non-existent and bankrupt, why they would do something like this and risk a lawsuit because we all know George Lucas likes to sue people. Well, at least back then he did. I have an answer for that too. Okay, what, we're talking about Xanon. What's the answer? Why? The answer, <laughs> the answer is that technically, and this is something that has been lost to time because when most people, and I was guilty of this many years ago as well because it's the easy conclusion to jump to, is that the movie is ripping off Star Wars and cashing in on the Star Wars recognition from the time. Well, so it's it's twofold because, yeah, it's obviously cashing in on Star Wars. I mean, duh, it's a Star Destroyer. But here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that it's an intentional. It's not a ripoff. It's an intentional parody. This movie. Oh, you're was, gonna, you're really I saw that yeah. in my research. You're taking the parody defense. I think Stuart Galbraith brought that up in his book and he doesn't buy it. 
I have a hard I, time buying it. I actually do buy it, and here's why. Because it's not the only parody in the movie. If you watch the film and you pay attention, and this is actually something that has been mentioned in some literature written in Japan on Gamera, there are upwards of a half dozen different uh, intentional parodies in the film. Now, again, I'm not going to defend it too much here because it's basically, I mentioned like scary movie and epic movie and those ridiculous oh, movies um, at the beginning, but it basically functions on the same principle of, ha, we know this movie is bad, but we're going to hold up something pop cultural that you recognize from a better movie to distract you. Ha ha, isn't that funny? And then they move on to the next joke. Those movies are nothing but okay. references to better movies. Okay. That's what this is. Okay. Let me use one of my favorite lines from MST3K to illustrate why that doesn't work. Overdrawn at the memory bank. They show Casablanca at one point mm -hmm. in the movie. And what was the joke? Don't put a good movie in your bad movie. To which I it would is, adapt for this yeah. one by saying, don't put slightly less worse movies in your bad movie. Listen, I'm not here to defend the practice of it. It's pretty lazy. It's definitely cash grabby. I'm not trying to say the movie is good because it did this. I'm just saying that's what they did. They, this film, <sighs> yes. when the movie actually came out, there was a, I want to say it was in the program book that was put in theaters along with the movie. It actually listed out all of the parodies. It said, hi, kids in the audience, pay attention for this one. Don't miss it. Oh, good Lord. Well, then what were the space women? Are three, I guess they're technically henshin heroes because they have funny costumes and they have alter egos and they do a, you know, their funny little henshin dance, which apparently I'm going to have to do as part of the hype memes for this because Monsters vs. Men started the space woman challenge some months ago when they covered this movie here we go but what are they are they as that is are they parodying common rider and super sentai or something with that or are they parodying um, superman because i'm going to be honest with you right now maybe Yuasa saw the chris reeve superman but his attempts at replicating that movie look a little bit more like kirk allen there's a little bit of Puma Man in the flying scenes uh, in this movie, for oh, sure. Oh, Puma Man, yes. Puma Man, for sure. So what's that? I mean, I, it's so, amusing that it's three women and one's a school teacher, and I've seen superhero school teachers before. Uh, what's interestingly, one is a car saleswoman, and I'm thinking, huh, I wouldn't think she would be honest enough to be a superheroine. But the most interesting one is Makfumiaki as Kalara. Hold on, Jimmy. Yes, whatever. Interview. Don't blow one of your interruptions, okay? I get it. But, Kalara, Makfumiaki is the one thing I genuinely like in this movie because she is the only actor in this who has even a shred of screen presence and charisma. Everybody else is phoning it in, or you have Kenny. I know that's what we call all of them, whatever. His real name's Keiichi. I don't care. He's Kenny. Kenny is just being Kenny. <laughs> Actually, I, I quite like the actor. Oh, my God. What's his name? The, the little guy. Keiichi. I don't remember who. Oh, Koichi Maeda. That's who it is. He was 11 at the time. I think he's really good in the movie. He's a good 11-year-old kid. This is his only movie, by the way. Oh, um, he's done. Yeah, he's done a bunch that, of TV. That's because for but, most uh, of these kids, from what I understand, unless you, uh, well, not Jimmy, uh, it was Carl Craig actually played you, played you in the movie, Jimmy. But yes. yeah, being in camera is apparently a career killer if you're a child because they none of them ever do anything again. Yeah, a lot of them have done. Now, 
he did. Maeda-san has been in a lot of TV. He's actually still active today, I believe, but this was his only film, yeah. Now, Mak Fumiake is awesome in this movie. Yeah, she's well-schooled in karate. I forget what her what level she's achieved with karate. She was a professional wrestler for a while. Mm-hmm. She wasn't a wrestler at this point. She had been a wrestler, and she's done a lot of other stuff. Apparently, she makes stuff on TV about health now, so, yes. you know, and she still acts and all of that. So I got to give her credit. And she's got a good look. She manages to somehow be a little bit butch, but still very feminine. I don't know how she does it. She's like the perfect tomboy in this. She's beautiful in this movie. She was yeah. she was actually she was very she's young. Very tall I was very, too. I was very surprised when I found out that she was because um, she's so tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, she's so tall. She was only 20 when the film was shot. That's crazy. She was a kid. Basically, she was so young, but she was she's a great actress you know just a great and she actually this is something funny that i i recently discovered she is very active on twitter is and she? um yes she has her own twitter account and she lived in america for a while so i believe she's bilingual don't quote me on that but uh she also to this day will oftentimes bring up Killara. Like she'll just act out scenes. Mm. She'll reference quotes because she has a lot of fond memories of working on the film and she loves the character. That I can understand. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and yeah. I, so, I forgot to mention, she started actually as a singer, then became a professional wrestler. Yes. She sang the theme okay. song, the new Gamera song for this film. She sang Oh, at that. the beginning? Yep. That's her. That's her oh, voice. And one of the, I know one of the other space women actresses was a singer as well. Yes. And she still is. And I want to say that was Yoko Kamatsu as Miton. I don't remember which space girl. It was either Miton or Marsha. I don't remember. Well, yeah, well, they that's the have, only other two. They didn't have... You mean, uh, yeah, the two that uh, the two that contribute little or nothing to the whole they did, story? They nearly as, as charismatic as Mak uh, uh, Kalara. Well, Kalara at least has some relevance to the plot. The other two there are just window dressing. Okay, they, they I think they, they, they probably they do cast much. them just because they look good in spandex. That's Let's be honest. They all look good in spandex, but the only reason they had three instead of one is because more girls in spandex. I guess it's the Zegra principle of if you're going to have your your uh, uh, dad's drive has your, more dignity your, than that. the theater, then you might as well put something in there for the dads to keep them awake. Yeah, well, it's still like I said, still more dignity than that. Uh, yeah, slightly. That's uh, Z, the whole. The, bleh, I don't I don't like that. <laughs> but, but the thing is, is that if you're thinking, OK, at least this could be fun because it's Gamera teaming up with a team of superheroes. But nope. they kind of rendered that <laughs> moot because apparently when our henshin heroes transform, they can be detected by Xanon, who could then use the most precise ship-mounted laser cannon ever to shoot them. So they spend most of the movie not transforming unless they're like, oh my gosh, this might kill us, which I can understand. I don't know, to a certain extent, that creates conflict and a little bit of suspense. But I'm like, you're kind of blowing this because there was so much potential there and you're just sort of wasting it because... Ah. Yeah, the the space women unfortunately ended up being s- somewhat of an that, afterthought like said, in the script. The they really only ever here. do one and a half things, and I say half for a reason. One of them is at two thirds of the way through the movie, they the Kilara gets rid of the control device on Gamera's neck. That's pretty cool. Oh, she, uh, good the for, control good device for you. that looks suspiciously like the UFO prop from the classic Twilight Zone episode, The Invaders. The exact one, indeed, yes. It really does look like that, doesn't it? it <laughs> wow, does. I never I never really thought of that. But yeah, the half that I mentioned is actually something that they do do in the film, but they don't explain it in the film, and it's hard to understand. There's a random sequence 
right before Gamera shows up where the, the space girls go outside to the park, they transform and then the laser shoots at them. And then like two seconds later, they transform back into earth women. And it looks like they did like, why did you do that? That's random. But apparently the intent for that scene was for they transformed and they were, that was them calling Gamera. Oh, was uh, it? And they don't explain it in the movie, so it's a well, it's a non sequitur. We'll it's like, just, why did you transform? We'll just add that to the long list of things that don't get explained in this movie. There's so yeah, many. Yeah. We'll be here all day if we're going to talk about all of them. Yeah, we, and we don't have time to talk about all of it. Oh, my gosh. And <laughs> even the parts that are not stock footage in this, they're just recycling. Because we got another alien invasion. We got more hot chicks in funny costumes and or hot costumes, I guess. Whatever. I don't care. So there's just so many things getting recycled. There's more Kenny's. It's just more disbelieving adults. I don't understand mm-hmm. this. And you want to talk about we talk about one of the things that doesn't make sense. I can't tell if this actually takes place in the same universe as the previous Gamera movies. I am very confused about that. It seems like they wanted to do the Godzilla's Revenge thing where it's in the kid's head, but they don't communicate that at all if that was their intention, which is they, a wee yeah. bit frustrating. Now, again, there's an answer, but you can't tell from watching the movie because the movie doesn't explain it very well. And again, some of it's there's some cultural jokes going on there that people outside Japan might not pick up on that kind of makes it a little bit easier to understand. But a lot of it just is not communicated. So in this movie, 100% Gamera A is real and B is the same Gamera from the previous seven movies. And C is not, because a lot of people think that he's a figment of Keiichi's imagination. Like he just imagines it and it doesn't happen. And some people think that his little pet turtle from the beginning turns into Gamera. Oh yeah, which goes back to the original movie because they did that too. They did that too. Now that was actually for sure a joke that was put into the film. And it's referencing two things. The entire idea of the little boy getting the turtle and he's like, the turtle understands my thoughts. Like, what are you talking about, kid? Now, A, that is obviously a reference to Toshio from the original Gamera and his disturbing obsession with turtles. But it's also a reference to a real life phenomenon that happened in Japan after the original Gamera came out where little boys across Japan who had like would go and buy pet turtles because they wanted to have turtles that would turn into Gamera. That was a real thing that happened. It's kind of like all of the people that bought clownfish after Finding Nemo came out and then yes. flushed them down the toilet oh. uh, just to try to set them free because they thought they were releasing the fish. It was kind of like that, except less fish death, which is always preferable because fish death is not okay. Oh, but um, unless you're eating them. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. I don't really Sushi's like. got to come from much. somewhere. I'm a big fish fan. That's true. You got to get those fish sticks from somewhere, but <laughs> but that's what that. So is. they were referencing that's what, that. That's oh. Oh, that's a good point for me to bring up that I suffered through the commentary on this. No offense to Richard mm-hmm. Busateri, who did the commentary for this on the Arrow set, but uh, your commentary is not good. And one of the things that just doesn't make sense in that commentary is there's this random point where he try he thinks he's being Joel in the bots or something with MST3K. He just makes lame jokes throughout most of it or describes what's happening in the movie. And then there's this point when Keiichi Kenny is getting the pet turtle and he plays the Ultraman color timer and starts talking about how that turtle is carrying salmonella and it's unsanitary. And he does this several times and it wasn't funny to begin with. Uh, I, I think I'd rather take the uh, salmonella jokes than the Keiichi and Kilara are dating jokes. Yeah, uh, let's... Which- I'm I don't want to. I don't want to go there. With, that was uh, I'm not dignifying that with any more airtime. So then we were introduced to another space woman in the vein of what we've seen before, and I don't know to make sure that this movie passes the Bechdel test, I guess. But with Garuge, 
who's even more useless. I did think it was possible. She is even more useless than Woman X and Zigra. But for some odd reason, Xanon, despite being treated as if he is this evil conqueror who wants to destroy the world, is strangely forgiving. Because she fails, what, a half dozen times before he decides, you know what, you should probably die. And even then, he does it by accident because he thinks he's killing Kalara and her friends. Yeah, Giruge, she doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. I mean, she seems to be in somewhat in control of, like, I'm not even sure. I mean, it's not even properly really explained. Is she in control of the monsters when they pop up? Is she just watching for Xanon? Is Xanon bringing them back? It's not completely explained. And her death at the end, if we're going to jump ahead to that, is also not completely explained because it seems like she definitely, like she, maybe she did that because it's like, why did she jump in front of the laser and just die? My thought was always that by doing that, it tricked Xanon into thinking that he'd killed the space women. But then Gamera just blows the ship up anyway. So it's, that doesn't do anything. Yeah. It's nonsense. Yeah. Well, yeah, like everything else in this. You want to talk about nonsense? What is with this movie's mild obsession with electric organs? Because Kalara has it in her mystery machine that she uses to transform, (laughs) and then she can use it to open a portal that looks suspiciously like the time travel paintings from the time travelers, which I know because of MST3K. And Kenny plays one and makes up a new Gamera song that makes me suddenly miss the original version from several movies before this. And I just, I I don't understand it. And okay, we need to talk about this movie's attempts. And I say attempts at special effects because someone decided that we should use this new piece of technology called the Tatsu ECG system, which was originally used in the message from space. And I'm sorry, maybe that was cheap and easy to use, but it makes this movie look like either a bad episode of classic Doctor Who or a low-budget PBS movie from the 60s. Yeah, there's definitely some cable access special effects going on in this movie. The entire VistaVision Totsu ECG system was inherently flawed. It was also very, very unreliable because everybody knows if you've seen Gamera Super Monster, you know about the, the Gamera prop that they made for the movie with the constantly opening and closing broken mouth. That, oh, the you, wind mean, uh, uh, you mean when Gamera showed up as a taxidermy Macy's Day parade float? Yeah, he looks a little bit like a parade float for sure. But one thing that I that some fans might not know is that a full suit was made for this movie. They actually did have the money. They actually built two flying Gamera props, a small one and a big one. The big one's the one with the broken mouth. But they also made a suit. And Toru Kawai was in the suit. And if that name doesn't sound familiar to people listening, Toru Kawai played Godzilla in Zone Fighter and Terror of Mechagodzilla. Mm -hmm. So this is the only time, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's the only actor to have played both Gamera and Godzilla, which is pretty amazing. Uh, But Jimmy, there's an assignment for your blog. See if he was in anything else. Well, I mean, he was definitely in a lot of other things. He was the t- the Tyrannosaur in Last Dinosaur, so uh, he he has a pretty he has a pretty awesome suit acting resume. Yeah, but well, uh, uh, I think what you're trying to I think what he, you're trying to get at was that suit was not really used in the movie, but it was used to promote the movie. Well, that's true. That's is that where the true, but, uh, is that where the popular it, meme of Gamera slumming it with holding up signs for other things got started? Yes. I think so, because this suit ended up promoting the movie. It ended up in a bunch of commercials in the late 80s. The, the real point I wanted to make was that it's, it gets even crazier because an entire destruction sequence was shot with this suit and the VistaVision system ruined it and they couldn't use it. 
Oh, so that's, that's why the suit. But that's why the suit's it? not in the movie. Since we're on the subject, did they use it for another infamous scene? Why I don't know what possibly you could mean, Nathan. Whatever oh, the could one you do- that the first Godzilla time I mean. watched this, it just about broke me. <laughs> because I'm like, no, no movie. Your Gamera is super monster. You don't get to do that. And that's the scene where we have a close-up of Gamera's legs while he's walking down a street. And then in the background, we see a poster for a movie get knocked over. And what was that? It was a poster telling people to go see a movie called Dojira or Dozilla. Dodzilla. I've seen it uh, rendered or translated, I should say, three different ways. It's an intentional shot at Godzilla. And when I saw that, my response was, oh, no, you didn't. Oh, no, you didn't. No, I don't care if Godzilla had been put out the pasture five years before this. You're Super Monster Gamera. You don't get to do that. Hey, Nate, I got two things. First of all, switch to decaf. I think and second the caffeine of all, and, that Miss Perkins gave me finally kicked it. I think it did. So here's my end of things on the Dojira poster. Because I'm actually about to provide some real context. Out of sight of Japan and outside of the context of 1980 Japan, This scene has been interpreted for years to be a joke at Godzilla's expense, but that was never the intention. The full title of the poster is Saraba Dojira, which is Farewell Godzilla or Goodbye Godzilla. And it's one of the parodies that I mentioned before. It's obviously definitely a Godzilla parody, but it was not a pot shot. It was Noriaki Yuasa making reference to a very real part of Japanese pop culture at the time, which was, where is Godzilla? There hasn't been a Godzilla movie in five years. Where is he? Now, that all kind of leads into a long-standing, I guess, a myth, just just kind of an assumption that Godzilla and Gamera were always rivals, you know, and there's always been that kind of feeling that they were clashing at the box office, and Toho definitely had moments where it seemed like they saw it that way, but Noriaki Yuasa never saw Godzilla as a rival. He saw Godzilla as a sensei, someone to learn from. The films could be learned from Eiji Tsuburaya, Ishiro Honda could be learned from, and his intent with Gamera was never to copy or better Godzilla, but simply to exist alongside him. And the poster in the film was not calling out or making fun of Godzilla. It was Noriaki Iwasa saying, there hasn't been a Godzilla movie in a few years. Where's my hero? I miss him. Oh. So that's what that was. It, yeah, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a joke or a pot shot at all. It was a Iwasa-san basically saying, I miss Godzilla. Oh, so there you go. That's the story behind that poster. All right. And now we're going to take a sharp left turn to talk about the product placement because they were desperate to get funding for this movie. So we yes, have the two most prominent ones would probably be Shonen Jump because we have manga in this, including a manga yes, that I think was a real manga. And then the kids are like, hey, look, it's the cop from the manga we were reading. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's Corn <laughs> Job, too. And he was actually played by uh, Rokugo actors, which was Yes, nice. and so, he was also the artist who wrote the uh, did the not wrote but did the art for the manga in question, which was uh, oh my gosh, what it was called? Police station something. Mm-hmm. Police so, station in front of Kameyari Park. Yeah, which, which had, is about uh, the, which police, had a the policeman with the turtle. Yeah, which had a turtle and Gamera was in it. Which if mm-hmm. this is if this actually is in universe and they're merchandising Gamera, that's kind of amusing. I always kind of like it when they merchandise kaiju in universe. They did that in Singular Point as well with Rodan. That was they quick. did the uh, Keiichi has Gamera books and his little room, which is funny because one of them was printed specifically for the movie. And there's a clear shot of Gamera on the cover or maybe in, I don't recall, it's either on the cover or the inside of the magazine. And that's actually the new Gamera suit that they made for mm-hmm. the movie. So if you want a good shot of it, there mm-hmm. it is. It's right in the movie. Yeah, If you're lucky, you might you might be able to see if they have any of the reprints of that thing because of this movie. 
movie over in the gift shop. I know you love collecting those things, so you can go give that a shot if you want. I'm going to have to check that out. That yeah, sounds like a plan. But there's a point where they prominently feature a Shonen Jump magazine. They're like, hey, look, it's Muscle Man or you know, Ultimate Muscle. I've seen it called Ultimate Muscle, too, in the States. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like, look at all of this. And I'm like, I'd rather read that than watch this movie. And then you have... Because one of the space women is a car saleswoman, we have Mazda, which was kind of nice for me because my dad had a Mazda Miata when I was a kid, and it was snazzy. So did my dad. We actually still have it. It's um not doing so hot right now. Yeah, it's, no, it's under no, a tarp my, waiting my da- to be fixed. <laughs> yeah, my dad had a Miata. Well, gee whiz, he must have really worked that thing hard because Mazda's like every other Japanese car in the world last forever. They'll survive the apocalypse, I'm telling you. But one of our space women has a red Mazda RX-7, which is snazzy. I'll give him that. And then Zanon, the jerk, blows it up. Well, he disintegrates it. That made me hate Zanon right there. How dare you destroy that beautiful car, sir. That beautiful piece of engineering. And Jimmy agrees with me. That was a beautiful piece of technology. It's always a sad moment when a bad movie destroys a good car. Yes. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes. There's nothing else to say to that other than yes. Now, here's something. Here's something, Mr. Defender of this movie. This is a scene that baffles me. I think I have a slightly better understanding of it, but it still baffles me, especially the first time I saw it. The scene where Keiichi meets the space woman, he starts showing off his his electric organ playing skills, and the space woman there. Yeah, they're kind of getting into it, bobbing their heads back and forth a little bit. And then suddenly, Kalara stops, has this bizarre, I don't know how to describe it, angry look on her face, and she's clenching her fist. And I'm like, is that determination? Is it anger? Is it murderous intent for this child? Is it constipation? Could One of she those have- things. Does she need more fiber in her diet? No, that was the moment where, because that's right before she goes outside and they try to transform to call Gamera and then they can't and they have to go back, but they end up calling Gamera anyway. That's kind of the lead into that. It happens around the time she hears Gamera's name in the song and she kind of realizes like, okay, this little boy is worth protecting. The world is worth protecting. We need to stop being cowards and hiding in here and we need to go call Gamera. But again, they don't explain that in the film. So it's an, it feels like a non sequitur. It does. There's just That's what this movie is. This whole movie is a non sequitur. Yeah. This entire yeah. And again, movie I, is a non sequitur. Really- this is non sequitur the movie. It is. Now, again, like I said before, I am willing to defend the movie based on why it ended up the way it is, because there are explanations for it. But I'm also no fool. This is a deeply broken, broken, flawed film. It entertains entertains me no end. I love it to death because it entertains me. I love watching it. It's goofy, good fun, but it is a broken film. Yeah, yeah, and it's breaking me. So what else do we got here? Let me keep going down the notes here. Uh, I'll give Zanon credit for this. He's smarter than most, well, most any villains in Tokusatsu Henshin Hero shows because he actually tries to attack the heroes when they're transforming, or at least shortly afterward. (laughs) Uh, So he gets some credit there. I'm not a big fan of the score in this. I think it's actually a little bit forgettable, and the fact that there's new music in the stock footage just seems really odd to me. I think there's one, I can't remember which one it was. There was one where I thought it was a little bit better. I think it was, I want to say it was either the virus or the Zigra fight. I thought the music did make, it was probably the mm. Zigra fight. I think that made that one better. Otherwise, I'm just like, this is just weird. This is just weird. Yeah. And I know you wanted to say something about the score. Here's your opportunity. I love the score for this film. 
<laughs> there it is. I am a big fan of uh, Shinsuke Kikuchi. I think he, I mean, obviously people know him for his anime work better. I mean, he's the guy who did the Dragon Ball soundtrack. So people know him from that and mostly his anime, but his Gamera scores, I mean, Giron has a great score and a lot of those cues and that kind of general feeling of Giron carried over into Jiger and Zegra as well, including some themes that were outright reused. But I really like how dynamic a lot of the score and like kind of light and fanciful the score for uh, Super Monster is. I have a lot of love for the dynamic monster fight theme that he wrote for some of the fights, including the first one where they use Gauss stock footage. There's just something about the way the high horns work and how dynamic it is that really complements Gamera's spinning. I don't know. It's just, it fits really well. I find it to be very exciting. It's a, it's a kid's fantasy film. And I think that the score fits pretty well with it overall. It's, it's just a very fun, energetic score. It's a lot more energetic than his previous films. And for what it's worth, I don't hate Love for Future either, which is the opening theme song, kind of the new Gamera theme song mm -hmm. for this film that uh, Fumiyake-san sings over the opening credits. And of course, the, the, this, it's kind of quote unquote credited to Keiichi in the film. It's kind of like he, he sat and wrote this ode to Gamera. Uh, but um, yeah, Love for Features in how hard I am rolling my eyes right now. No, it's listen, it's not a it's not a fantastic song. It's not it's nowhere near as catchy or iconic or great as Hiramasa Nagata's classic Gamera theme that he wrote the lyrics for. There's just it's it's not up to that level, but it's it's an earworm. Every time I watch the movie, I find myself humming it. It's just mm -hmm. got a very catchy, fun, childlike, yeah, you know, it's, it's cute. It's a cute yeah. little song. Except it's an earworm that's a lot like the brain bugs in Star Trek 2. It just eats oh, at so your brain it's, and wraps it's, itself around your cerebral cortex so you're susceptible to suggestion. It's an earworm that's an earworm, is what you're trying to say. It's yes. a literal earworm. Yes. Because earworms that are songs are fun, but earworms that are real worms are something you don't want near your ear. Yes, exactly. That's a mouthful. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Anyway, just throwing this in here, a little shout out to JR from the Drip Space. Uh, Garuge has instant transmission, and no one notices when she just magically appears out of nowhere? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> People what just walk heck? right by her when uh, maybe, she teleports. Uh, maybe it's part of the uh, part of the so-called parody that goes right over my head because apparently I'm not smart enough to know these things. Cultural nah, barriers. I, I don't think that's a parody. I think that's just lazy. <laughs> oh, I, we finally agree on something. And then here's something. <laughs> and this gets brought up. Uh, this is part of some of the lame jokes in in the commentary about Keiichi calling all of the space women and even Garuge uh, sis. That's how it gets subtitled. That's a Japanese language and cultural thing. It's just that's how it's being literally translated. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's just like the old man who is in Godzilla Planet of the Monsters that Hauro calls grandpa and, and the girl in that calls grandpa. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's more like respected elder. It's a colloquialism. It's and a colloquialism. It's, it's, but apparently he's an only child and he wants a sister. You know what, Keiichi? You sure you want a sister that bad? I had a sister magically gifted to me a year ago, and I'm not so sure I wanted her. I love you, Jess, but seriously. A lot of family tension going on in this episode, I think. Have you met Jessica? Actually, you've not been to the island since Jessica showed up. No, I've heard her on the show, but I haven't visited since she was uh, made, created, birthed, since she happened. Yeah, it's weird. And I just realized I said sister like instead of pseudo sister. I'm losing it. I am. I am cracking. I am cracking. You're all over the. You're all over the place, man. I think hard. we need to. 
I think we need to talk about something sane, so, like Space Battleship Yamato showing up. Yeah, in the yeah, oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. And then here, here's another shout out to Dallas Mora, who was on for the Kong Skull Island episode. And then he had me on an episode of Com Talk to talk about Galaxy Express 999. And I said, it's funny that you asked me to come on for this because there's actually a kaiju connection to this because apparently Gamera has met Galaxy Express 999, which is apparently in the same universe as Space Battleship Yamato, and both of them are in the same universe as Gamera. I don't know how any of this works. It's just like I heard about, what is it, like the, the St. Elsewhere theory, where everything is part of some intricately connected shared universe? I think we've got that right here, but I don't know what's the beginning of it. I don't know if it's Gamera or one of the other ones. All right, time to crack my knuckles. Here we go. We're going to dive into this one. So first off, the Yamato, and even though it's not expressly shown the intent with the Galaxy Express 3.9 sequences, were, that's that's Keiichi dreaming. Like, it cuts back to him asleep in his bed. He's dreaming. That's a Oh, dream. okay. Yeah. That suddenly makes a little bit more sense. But the yeah. funny thing is, it's Gamera flying into space, but he literally, apparently, he literally flies into dream, space to go see Giron. space to go fight yeah. Giron. It, it's, and then it is ridiculous. Back to it's Earth badly to fight timed. other monsters. I'm very, very confused, movie. So the whole joke with Yamato was, of course, that's part of the placement you were talking about earlier, but it's also more direct because Gamera Super Monster, the title, basically this entire movie, it's this one just goes over people's heads if you've never seen or read Space Battleship Yamato, but most of Gamera Super Monster in terms like the, from the title to the ending, which we're about to get to, is all very much Space Battleship Yamato. In Japan, Gamera Super Monster is called Uchu Kaiju Gamera, Space Monster Gamera. So the title of the movie is a joke. Space Battleship Yamato, Space Monster Gamera. It's intentional. The title of the movie is a parodying Yamato. So it's only it's only natural that they would. When I say natural, I mean it's still pretty like not such a non sequitur, especially if you like, you don't get the joke. And very few people. I didn't get the joke when I first saw the movie. I was confused years ago when I saw it on videotape. I was like, "What in the world? Why is this here?" But yeah, the Space Battleship Yamato being an, an which is really funny because the music that plays while <laughs> during that dream sequence where Keiichi's imagining Gamera encountering the Yamato, that's literally the theme song to the Yamato anime. So it is. <laughs> yeah. So it's even so it, more stock footage. <laughs> it's literally more. It is stock music and stock footage. And Galaxy Express 3.9 is also pretty much the same thing. It's just a, it's just a joke. I guess you had to have been a 10 year old kid in Japan in 1980 to get it. It goes over the heads of people outside of Japan and it really goes over the heads of 20 and 30 something white dudes in America. Like I did, I, I didn't. Oh my gosh, that was Jimmy. Jimmy, did I just hear a thing? Yes, did I just yes hear you he go, did. Apparently he wants to, he has to point out that what really boggles his mind is not Galaxy 3.9's inclusion in this. It's the fact that the science in Galaxy 3.9 makes no sense. That is a good and point. It, However, it makes Jimmy, his brain explode. However, Jimmy, that was so strike two. He just could not Sorry, contain man. himself, apparently. All right. Well, we, I, I got to give you credit for spacing it out for sure. You deserve thank, that. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't always aim for high quality humor. And even when I do, I hardly ever hit the target. But, you know, and what do you what do? You, so what do you a hype meme for this episode is born. <laughs> There you go. You're welcome for all the material. Oh my gosh, what have we not talked about with this ridiculous, insane movie yet? 
was the fact that the space women are from the peaceful planet in M88, part of the parody too? Because apparently um, they're from the neighboring star system to the Ultras? I feel like that one might have been more of a trope because there's M78, there's Nebula Space Hunter M. It, it seems like more of a trope. Just the same thing with the space women themselves. A, a lot of people kind of assume that they're a parody of very specific, like, like they're definitely parodying like Henshin heroes. I feel like it was more of a trope thing than a parody. I guess since we're talking about that, I'll rattle off some of the other scenes in this film that were, again, read, cash grab, look at this better thing we're showing you, but still a parody. Uh, we talked about the, the the subtle one in the beginning with the Star Wars ship that goes all over a lot of people's heads. People don't usually notice that one. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, unless you're Jimmy. He's fuming right now. Yeah, I'm sure he Bootleg is. Bootleg Star Wars, he keeps calling it. We talked about the turtle cop guy. One thing we didn't talk about was in the scene where the parade float Gamera, the Mardi Gras Gamera, uh, shows up over the city. Mardi Gras um, <laughs> Mardi, Mardi Gamera. I didn't see anybody um, throwing beads at him. That might have made it a better scene. <laughs> but, um, I would think the space women are more likely to get beads thrown at them, but I'm just going to leave it at that. <clears throat> anyway, that scene from my research was apparently supposed to be parodying the mothership from Close Encounters. Oh, I think I heard something about that. But yes. yep, foop, right over my head. Yep, that's a subtle one. Uh, another one that's a little bit more overt is there's a moment in uh, Kikuchi's score where there's a little bit of da-dun-dun-dun-dun, a little bit of Jaws. Oh my and gosh, then the Jaws name. Oh my gosh. And they didn't put that in the scene with Zigra? With Zigra, which Hashtag was edited intentionally to be more like Jaws. Yeah, they edited the Zegra scene to be another parody scene where they had his fin coming through the water because obviously when Zegra came out, Jaws hadn't been released. So the oh, Zegra and- spaceship slicing through the water was edited to be a Jaws yeah. thing. And when then, uh, they, they also- I, I, and then I, when I saw that clip again, even though I, I'm surprised I didn't bring it up when I watched Zegra last month, the thought that came to my mind with that ship was, it's only a model, but... <laughs> You're going to need a bigger Skittle. Uh, you're going to need a bigger Skittle. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, was the pet taxi part of it, too? Because the Shobajin called, they want it back. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, 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 ha. That is funny. Ha, 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 ha. Anyway, if the Shobajin are listening to this, I apologize for my insane friend. Um <laughs> Lines well, are being well, crossed. Then, you know here. what's funny? You know what's funny? Garuge, even when she succeeds, she fails because she actually yep. manages to plant a disintegration bomb on Kalara's mystery machine, and it does go off. And she's like, "Haha, I have killed them." She didn't. No. Hence, okay, it, so- they were saved by the force field in the pet taxi. That's. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that I have no explanation for. That's yeah. just a bunch of silliness. Yeah, that's just that's just lazy. Also, yeah. I just want to point out that K uh, that Keiichi Kenny, he's mm-hmm. he is one bloodthirsty little child. He keeps cheering Gamera to slaughter all those other monsters and he keeps cheering them on. He's like, yeah, kill him. That's just, that's just what Gamera kids do. If you watch all the movies, oh, yeah. they're always I, on the I sidelines going, one of them. get him. I work with one of them. What are you talking about? You know, they're all, they're all saying, Gambate, Gamera, go Gamera, you can do it. Okay, I guess since we're on the topic of Giruge being the worst hench person ever. 
So she, I will give the film some credit for how it handles one bit of the stock footage, because uh, this is something that always jumped out at me. Or actually, two, I'll call out two real quick, briefly. So the first one is the scene, again, where you have the device on the back of Gamera's neck that is being used to control him. And they repurpose some footage from him in Gamera versus Jiger, where he's wandering around after he gets stung by Jiger's tail and he's in pain. And then he collapses on the beach, but they repurposed him going through the city to look like he was destroying it. And that's clever. And even more clever is the fact that there is stock footage from the black and white original Gamera in this movie, but it's, it is filmed as though they're watching it on a black and white TV tinted slightly red, which is a very good use for that because in Gamera versus Virus, they just play that <laughs> scene completely in black and white with no explanation. Like you're supposed to accept it as being like the normal colored stock footage. Yeah. Like, don't, just, don't pay attention to it being black and white. Just don't think about it. But in this movie, they actually took the time to kind of present it in a way that worked within the film's universe. I'm always a big fan of, of when movies do that. So yeah, I'll give them credit them for, that. for that. That was the one time they actually used the stock footage well. Honestly, I think that the way that they edited the stock footage into this movie was overall pretty well done. They even went as far as deleting and slightly trimming some special effects mishaps that were in the original movies that oh. now that they had the ability to... Like, I want to say there's a scene in Virus where the uh, the prop floats for a little bit too long in the water. And it's very subtle, but if you watch virus and then you watch the virus scene in super monster you'll notice that they trimmed it to get rid of some of the phoniness a little bit and there's also some new scenes every once in a while if you watch some of the sequences i don't remember which stock footage clump it's in but there is a new scene of gamera firing his jets to fly away Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple of other new scenes of Gamera sprinkled throughout the movie using the small flying prop, the big flying prop with the eternally opening and closing mouth, and even one or two shots that actually use the suit. And uh, obviously the uh, Dojira poster scene uses the suit. And there are a couple of other sequences that briefly use the suit. And again, credit where credit is due, the scene where Kilara gets Zanon to shoot the, the quote-unquote UFO control device off of Gamera's neck, that device and Gamera's back and neck and head was all one one scale and was made just for this movie. Oh, that's where I see. That's where most of the budget went. Uh, you yeah, know where else some of the budget? You know where else some of the budget probably went to Jimmy's favorite part of the movie, the cat fight. Oh, there. You <laughs> Why am I not surprised, Jimmy? Answer me, Jimmy. I dare you. No, you're not gonna. It was worth a try. I think he wanted to say something, but I beat him. You got you. one more I chance, saved, Jimmy. You, got, you can say one more thing if you want to. I saved him a strike. Anyway, we get to see Kalara continue to be cool. I wish she was wearing her superhero costume, but whatever. That was surprisingly well choreographed. I it have was. To say, I was shocked how well it was choreographed. For a hot minute, it was Common Rider or something. <sighs> it was. Yeah. Hey, hey, Nate, you it, you good? You kind of blanket on me there, buddy. Yeah, no, not, I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, I forgot about this little note. When uh, Kenny's mom is telling Garuge, who wakes up sleeping next to him, that's not weird. <laughs> uh, and he and she says, oh, he always wanted a sister. I just wrote down, oh, gag me with a gallon of Canadian maple syrup. There you go. Shout out to you, Chris Cook and Canada Land. See, my my go-to joke for that scene is always like sh the mom will say, you always wanted a sister, good night. And then in my head, I always say to myself, oh, and by the way, what was your name again? That's nah, not important. Have fun being alone in a room with my son. Yeah. Like, and now we a, have to. That's a very trusting come, mom. Now we come to it. The yes. end of this movie. Now we get to talk about it. So 
What do you, what, okay, this... so first of all, I guess we have to follow tradition here. What do you, Sir Nathan of Marchand, have to say about the epic colonian conclusion of this film? Epic? Epic is not the word I would use. This is how I described it in my notes. And so the movie and the Showa Gamera series comes to an end in the most poorly realized yet most Japanese fashion ever. Gamera makes a heroic kamikaze against Zanon. Poor guy. Poor, the, poor And Gamera. the editing in that was just baffling. The first time I watched it, I didn't even realize that's what happened. I did not realize. I was like, what, 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 what'd he just, what'd he do? And then the characters in the next scene had to say, Gabbara sacrifice. And it was like, he seriously kamikaze the not star destroyer. That's how you're going to end this. Well, is it that just a kick in the pants? <laughs> I didn't think wow. this series of movies was all that good to begin with, but that's your send off. A poorly realized suicide run. What? Yes, Jimmy. I don't care if that's strike three. You had a better send off in your docudrama. I felt more when I saw that than I did watching this. And I see Gamera every day. I guess the first question I'll bring up is Gamera is ob obviously is alive. I mean, he's on the island with you. So I don't know if that makes the end of the movie worse or a little bit easier to, to take from your perspective. Well, it's kind of like when I first saw Godzilla vs. Destroyer, I already knew there were more movies. That's true. So here's the context that I teased earlier that I will now provide for the admittedly baffling ending of this film. So as you mentioned before, uh, and this is something John LeMay's brought up, and he's absolutely right, the idea to kill Gamera was Noriaki Yuasa's idea. So here's where that gets interesting. So the reason that John gives is, is also very correct, of course. John knows what he's talking about. That dude is awesome. We love you, John. <laughs> He correctly states that Yuasa ended the character's life in the film because he just didn't think Gamera could come back from that. Like he knew that this film was not going to be successful. He knew it was not a good movie. That's the reason he at least publicly gave for making the decision to kill, quote, his son, end quote, his son Gamera. But there are two wrinkles you in know, this story. when you put it that way, it sounds even worse. It is honestly very tragic. I mean, it's we're talking, listen, we're talking about a fictional character here. You know, we're talking about a character. Don't let the real Gamera hear me. I'm just doing this for the sake of conversation. We all know Gamera is real. But here's the deal. There's a wrinkle in this. It is a tragic thing. I mean, this guy spent years of his life. By 1980, he'd been working on Gamera for a decade and a half. And there's, again, there's really no concrete evidence for this that I could find. But there's a theory, a rumor. There's two rumors. And the first one has to do with Gamera, the, like why Gamera died. And that is that A... Yuasa-san, he figured Gamera couldn't come back from this. This is the bottom of the barrel. The movie's not going to be a success. This is it. But the other theory is that he didn't want the character to be a, um, alive for Tokuma to mess with anymore in any future movies without Yuasa's involvement. Uh, Yuasa was always very coy about his feelings toward the Heisei Gamera trilogy. And the implication being that a lot of people assume he did not really care for those movies that much because they weren't the lighthearted children's films that he always imagined Gamera to be the star of. The idea is that Yuasa's intention was to kind of take Gamera away from Tokuma so that they couldn't mess with him anymore. But there's no real proof of that. So wow. take that with a grain of salt. I don't want any more King Kong versus Godzilla dual ending myths being spread. Oh, this Lord. is just speculation. Oh. And the other thing I'm going to say is also speculation. But it has a grain of truth to it. So Gamera, you ready to have your mind blown, Nate? Uh, it's yeah. a little hard for it to have my mind blown right now. <laughs> I think I'm a little blown right now. Insert riff here. So anyway, my man Gamera was not 
supposed to die originally in this film. Oh, really? As, as originally written in the script by Nissan Takahashi, the film was supposed to end in a kind of lighthearted parody of the previous Gamera movies, where he always flies away happy and the kids wave goodbye. That's how this movie was supposed to end. The accepted fact is that prior to shooting, Yuasa changed the script to have Gamera die, and that's why you get that downer of an ending that then randomly becomes like a happy flying over the city ending. And again, if you read between the lines, there's something else going on here because, the again, the original ending had Gamera live, and it's possible that that ending might have been shot, or at least partially shot. It's very unlikely that any of the special effects were done, but if you dig through the arrow... Gamera set on the Super Monster part of the uh, fourth disc, whatever disc has Gamera Super Monster on it. Disc four, yeah. When you go through the photo gallery, there's a scene of all three space women and Keiichi looking up in the sky and waving it, like not waving, but happily looking at something. And that scene is not in the movie, but if you watch the movie, the coat that Keiichi is wearing in that behind the scenes still, he's wearing that coat when Gamera dies. The other three characters aren't wearing the coats, but he is. Here's where we get into crazy X-Files speculation conspiracy territory here. It's very possible that Gamera kamikazeing the ship was shot as a fake-out death to trick audiences into thinking Gamera died. And then there's a sad cry, and everybody cries, Keiichi cries, Gamera sacrificed himself, and then it's a fake-out, and Gamera comes back and flies over. Everybody waves because he's okay. Gamera flies off into the distance, alive, and then it cuts to Kilara saying, come and fly with me, and that's why everybody's happy at the end. But those scenes are missing, which is also why the editing in that ending is so weird. That's, again, speculation, but it's very possible that at least the scene was planned to be shot. It may have been shot. And if it was shot, then there's, I mean, it's possible that the fake out ending thing wasn't real and that they shot that later, or it just wasn't a thing at all. Again, no rumors started here. Something tells me that happened in real life. Anyway, unless you have anything else to say, I think now would be a good time to move on to the Toku topic. I guess I'll just wrap up by saying that I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't want me being like, cause I, I came on the show to be like, you know, positive about the movie because I don't like, I don't like being negative about movies, but I'm not here to try to convince people that you've been wrong about Gamera super monster and that it's somehow this beautiful, great, a plus five out of five hidden gem perfect movie that's just been misunderstood it has been very misunderstood um, uh, there's been a lot of disinformation about it but i'm yeah. I, th this movie i said it before i'll say it again is deeply flawed it is broken it was broken before it started filming it was broken during filming it was broken after filming it is still broken now 40 plus years later but the worst, like I said before, the worst crime that a film can commit for me is being just ungodly boring but for me, this is a film I can come back to. Like, if I don't want to go through all of the Showa Gamera movies, and like, I love watching all of them in order, but let's just say I want like a sampling, you know, just of a little bit of each one. I can throw in Gamera Super Monster and get my fix for all of the Showa Gamera stuff in what, 80 minutes, 90, 90 minutes, however long the movie is. It's a sample platter of what makes the Showa Gamera series so fun. Like I said, it is a flawed film, but it is not boring. It's entertaining. Also, you have to keep in mind that I, you, we're not the target audience for this film. No, we're not. We know we're trying to analyze it. And at a certain point, that just kind of defeats the point. Sometimes you just have to look at a film and say, I'm going to sit down and enjoy it or I don't like it and I'm not going to watch it. Both are perfectly valid options. So 
I'm not here to try to tell people this is somehow like the best movie ever made. I'm just saying there's been a lot of misinformation about why it is the way it is. And understanding how a film ended up the way it is, is sometimes more interesting than the film itself. And uh, whether that's the case here is up to each person listening to decide for themselves. Yeah, I stand by what I said. It's fun. And sometimes that's all I need from a turtle movie. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. And uh, I will be here all week. Turtle movie. As I think uh, at this point, I would prefer my turtles to be named after Renaissance artists. And sure, I'll add Danny's brain to my list of sources for this episode. (laughs) All right. Hello? Is this thing on? Am I alive? Okay. Okay. It's Danny. I'm back. This is future Danny jumping in with a little quick addendum for this portion. I've uh, already obviously been here. I've recorded the episode and I left the island. Please don't tell Nate I know how to hack and do his podcast. Anyway, before we uh, before I let you guys progress to the rest of the episode, I actually wanted to jump in real quick and address something that was just said while you were listening to it. Um, pertaining to the sources that I actually have for all the information that I had in this episode, I I made a couple of mentions of a few things, but I actually wanted to uh, jump back in and list off a couple of other sources that if you guys are interested in Gamera Super Monster related things, you should check out, including an admission that while we uh, were recording together on the island, I experienced what might be the most epic brain fart of my uh, of any podcast I have been on, and I wanted to uh, quickly go in and make sure this is what happens when you don't work from notes and you just start spewing things you know. So I wanted to go in and pay credit where credit is due, real quick. So a couple of I mentioned a couple of sources for where I was able to learn a lot about Gamera vs. Uh, Gamera Super Monster, including uh, the Gamera Chronicles, a uh, history of Fantastic Die movies, which is a Japanese book. Um, one book that I didn't mention that has a little information in it is Heisei Gamera Completion. And again, those books are both entirely in Japanese. Uh, so there's obviously some translation that has to go on there. Um, it's also worth mentioning that information on the fall of Dae that I acquired came from listening to uh, some of the audio commentaries that were recorded for the Shot Factory and Arrow video releases of the previous seven Showa Gamera films. And it's also worth noting um, the work of Stuart Galbraith, who was mentioned on the show. His book, Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo, has an interesting section in it on uh, Gamera Super Monster that I wanted to call out. But one, the one source that I completely whiffed on mentioning, even though I said I, w- I, mean, I was going to mention it on the air because it's something people should know about, it, since a lot of these sources are audio commentaries and some of them require translation, I actually recently discovered that there is an English language book that takes a lot of the information I discussed in this episode about Gamera Super Monster and puts it all into one neat little package. It's actually a, an English language book that you can get on Amazon right now called The Unofficial Tokusatsu Fans Handbook for Gamera Super Monster. Uh, there's a lot in this book that was discussed in this episode, a lot of the same information that was covered, uh, including a couple of the same talking points that I mentioned, and a lot more. So if you want to learn way more than what we talked about in this little episode about Gamma Super Monster, check this book out. It's by Constantine Furman. It only costs a couple of... It's very cheap. It's just a... It's a 
basically a, a audio commentary in book form. It's a really fascinating little read, and um, this is, it's, I just wanted to mention it because it helped me out in preparation for this episode, and I wanted other people to know that it exists, and I completely brain farted and didn't mention it on the air, and I wanted to remedy that. So definitely check out that book if you want to know more. It's got a lot more info in it, and it has a lot of um, stuff that was not covered on the show. So anyway, that's it. That's all I wanted to say. I'm getting out of here before Nate finds out that I hacked his show. Peace. Okay, now we're moving on because I've had enough. You know, I'm the kaiju guy now thanks to the Monster Island Film Fault, but before that I was the superhero guy. I wonder if there's a way I could combine those. Hey, Nathan. Uh, Travis from Kaiju Weekly? Yeah, I'm here because I need a co-host for a new Toku Heroes podcast. Oh? What's it called? Him. Standing by. Complete. That's right, heroes. We are the Henshin Men, a tokusatsu superheroes appreciation podcast. Join us as we watch several episodes of a TV series from the wide world of Henshin heroes and discuss their merits and cultural significance. Starting with one of my all-time favorites, the original Kamen Rider from 1971. We'll give out awards for things like the best action scenes and crazy what the henshin moments. So hear us every Monday in your favorite podcatcher to get your weekly rider kicks. Gotta go, cause we only have a minute to henshin it. All right. Now we're going to go into a little bit more detail about what made this train wreck, figuratively and literally. And that being, we're going to talk about Dae Film, the studio that made this. And so, so many other things that a lot of people don't talk about when they should. It's a fascinating story. It is. Like like you said at the top of the episode, Toho, you know, gets a lot of the center of the, it's, it's the center of discussion. I mean, it's the home of Godzilla. And but Kurosawa Dai, and, and Kurosawa so and all that good things. stuff. But Daie has such an incredibly rich history and such a story behind it, a story like while during its heyday. Their contributions to Japanese film and cinema at large, and also, uh, and I, I know we're going to talk about this, but their contribution to making Japanese cinema a part of world cinema conversation, thanks to a, a certain Kurosawa film. And, and then, of course, obviously the monster stuff, but in Zatoichi and things like that. It's just so fascinating. They are mm -hmm. so deeply significant. Mm -hmm. And then the story of how they crumbled and fell, it's awful. I mean, it's it's a great story, but it's sad. So we should start at the beginning, obviously. Dai was founded in 1942, so during the war, by, as we've mentioned several times, and I have mentioned this man on several past episodes, Masaichi Nagata, who was at the time an exec at Shinko Kinema. And at this point, this was all part of a government consolidation of Japanese film studios, where their plan was to take them from 10 to 2. It's because film stock was a wartime resource, and it's also because the government wanted more control over, well, everything. And this was done by the Office of Public Information. The full name of the studio, I should mention, is Dai Nihon Ega, or the Greater Japan Motion Picture Company. Now, Nagata managed to convince the government to 
consolidate to three companies instead of two, but the third one ended up being weak and only semi-official. And also, just to let you know, he kind of shafted some people to do that. <laughs> Daie was born by combining Daito and Shinko Nakatsu, which was purposefully undervalued. Remember how I said some people got shafted? Was able to keep its theater chain, because that's one thing that's really different for Japanese film studios compared to, say, American film studios, is they also own the theaters. So at the end of all of this, Daie ended up with plenty of studios, but no theaters. Wah, wah. Yeah. By the way, I ended up being a little bit frustrated doing my research because I thought, oh, look, I found two good articles about the history of Daie. They're the same thing, just posted in two different places. Whoops. Yep. Anyway, <laughs> quote, other problems surfaced. With Shoujiko tying up the women's audience and Toho appealing to the urban audience, only the farmers and children, how appropriate, remained for the new Daie. With its first few films failing to make money, the studio relied on capital funds loaned from another film company. Following the first success of a Daie film, New Snow, the police arrested Nagata, the home ministry issuer of the warrant and traditional rival of the Office of Public Information, accused Nagata of bribing the information office to have his three-company plan accepted. Nagata denied the charge and was released within 50 days to the sorrow of others in the film industry, end quote. Yeah, when he said it was a wild and crazy story, we were, uh, we were not kidding. It, it just gets crazier. Yeah, and then the occupation forces got involved with this after the war. In fact, they were hunting war criminals. And even in the realm of filmmaking, they had a list of suspects that they were going after that was drawn up by the Japan Motion Picture and Drama Employees Union, which, by the way, is a communist organization. And guess who was on that list? You? You wish. No, Nagata. <laughs> Jimmy was itching for his fourth strike no, there. He almost yeah. did it. I've got, I've got one more strike. I yeah. wonder if I can mm -hmm. make him break. Yeah, but he was on the list and he was removed for rehabilitation. Air quotes. Rehabilitation which was completed in 1948 when he got reinstated and then he got busy with his next big plans. But guess what? Daie did not have the luxury, the advantage, so to speak, of money and big stars. So guess what they did? Sensationalism. Ah, yes. But you know what kind of sensationalism that included? Apparently kissing scenes, adultery, and eroticism, according to my source. Yikerinos. I didn't realize kissing was so controversial. But then again, I remember this is Japan. Yeah, there was also Japan during that particular era. Yes. I mean, so it was there's a freakish lack of kissing in Godzilla movies. I'm just saying. That is true. I can and, name uh, I mean, the, the only one, one I hand. can think of before you got to 2014 was from one of Jimmy's heroes and also one of his man crushes. So, mm. Oh, you mean that overrated blonde guy from America? Mm, this is, he's... This oh, is, he... I, I, I can see the gears turning in his head. He's like, what's more important to me, the Pteranodon bot or my love of Nick Adams? Let me have it, Jimbo. You know I deserve it for making fun of Nick Adams. Yes. That was worth a shot. I love Nick Adams, everybody. He's awesome. He's great. I didn't mean it. <laughs> yeah. I love They Apparently, Daye made a name for himself with the quote-unquote ingenious post-war kiss that occurred in a movie they had called Brilliant Revenge. It was a scene that they inserted to show Tolstoy's resurrection being performed on stage. Wow. Quote, in this play, within a film, there would be nothing objectionable since the Japanese involved were playing foreigners and everyone knew that foreigners kiss in public, end quote. 
<laughs> Man, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I actually I have did not no know idea that. if you could. Uh, good luck finding that movie when you go back to the states. I don't know if you can. <laughs> I don't know if that one's findable. I'll have to uh, have to put my uh, the the same uh, <laughs> the same detective skills I used to track down all the Ultraman shows like ten years ago. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Danny boy, and now we come to an important part of Dae's story because this is where a certain famous filmmaker comes into play. You know that guy. Not a lot of people know who he is. You know, uh, Akira Kurosawa, I think, is his name. Yeah, he was the guy who ripped off Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he made that movie, <laughs> A Hidden Fortress, totally ripped off Star Wars. In fact, yeah. he was he also, so... he also ripped off A Bug's Life, too, which is weird. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And the, the amazing thing is he ripped them off before those other movies existed. He must be a time traveler. Anyway. He also, he also ripped off A Bug's Life after he died. Yes. The man was a magician. Yes, magic. Anyway, Nagata discovered that he had, I don't know how this worked, but according to more source, it was phrased, more or less accidentally signed a one-year distribution of production contract with Kurosawa, was approached to make a little movie called Rashomon? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Now, Nagata any- initially objected to Kurosawa's offer because he thought the story was just too weird and offbeat, but Kurosawa campaigned to have it made, and Nagata relented, and then with many objections, he gave him the money, and he went and made the movie. It was a huge gamble, and it took longer to make than expected, which, for what I understand, is very typical with Kurosawa. <laughs> That's a tradition of his, yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> it's it's him and Terry Gilliam. They, they always go yeah, over time right. and over budget. <laughs> but it became a surprise international hit, especially at festivals like Venice. Yeah, this was the film that introduced Japanese cinema to the world. This was the first time, especially after, you know, post, we're talking post-war. Rashomon was 1952. That's very fresh after World War II. Mm-hmm. And just <clears> when <throat> the occupation ended, too. Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. So not, this was also a big deal in Japan, as a, in addition to it being out of Japan. This was the first time the world stopped and said, wow, there's an entire universe of beautiful films being made in this country under very tight circumstances not a lot of money not a lot of time and that's still true for japanese films all these years later but we're talking after the war and after the occupation so it was even tighter and rashomon first of all if anybody out there listening has not seen rashomon i uh, highly encourage you to seek out and watch rashomon it's a, it's a very easy to find if you're a streaming person then i it's on hbo max it's right? on hbo I mean, max and on criterion's channel yeah yeah it's very easy to find it is a transcendently beautiful film mm-hmm. um it is it'll make you think it'll make you laugh it'll make you cry this was the perfect movie to use to introduce japanese cinema to the world because it is still to this day one of kurosawa's top masterworks and to this day that's something daie was able to take to their graves in 1971 <laughs> is that they might have had their problems they might have had some tumultuous periods but they helped make rashomon yes daie the studio that made rashomon that's an epitaph oh yeah you know? for sure yeah they didn't give kurosawa his start but they catapulted his career for sure for sure yeah anyway now because of rashomon daie now had quote-unquote double demand from both home and foreign audiences Quote, one critic pointed out that in the same way foreigners forever souvenir hunting, I think they're talking about us, <laughs> they, they always pick Japanese-style paintings or silk rather than our oils on canvas. Daie, however, was not complaining. 
Daei then launched a regular program of color film production and thus became the first Japanese company to go in for color on more than an experimental basis. Evaluating the international market, Nagata decided that the success of his films overseas lay in their exoticism, and he therefore decided on more large-scale period films. Little by little, however, it became abundantly clear that Nagata was wrong. <laughs> His policy of producing period films that appeal to foreigners was disastrous, end quote. To that end, much of Dai's output in the 50s was slickly made but low-grade and intended for export. They even made some co-productions, including one with the Shaw Brothers with mm-hmm. 1955's The Princess Yang, or Yohiki. By this time... <laughs> There were six film studios in Japan. So they went from three to six since the war. And Daiei focused on the youth market and, as we said, made period pieces. But, interestingly, Daiei made Japan's first sci-fi film, and we have Arrow to thank for giving this to the world now. Invisible Man appears in 1949. But it didn't get into that market until after, despite that milestone, they didn't get back into that market until after Godzilla 54 came out in... You know, that little movie, you know, you might have heard of it. And then they made Warning from Space, which also has been gifted to the world thanks to Arrow. And then this got picked up by AIP TV, which started Daae's relationship with that company. As you have probably heard me mention on numerous occasions this year, AIP TV released a huge chunk of these Showa Gamera movies to the States. Here's the interesting thing that was brought up in this article I was looking at. Have you ever heard of Taiyozoku? Actually, I'm drawing a blank on that. Well, here you go. Here's a quotation from my source about it. Quote, Perhaps even more typical of the commercialization of the Japanese films was the fad of the Taiyozoko movies during the summer of 1956. The concept of the Taiyozoko, literally Sun Tribe, was often credited to Shintaro Ishihara... Not a fan of that guy, but anyway. For his short novel, Season of the Sun, a violent adolescent outcry against tradition and the older generation. It is this theme which was soon taken up by the young people whose anarchistic ideas allowed them to think themselves members of the Taiyozoku, end quote. Okay, I, I have heard of that, but for some reason I was drawing a blank on the name. Yeah, but this is something that Daie started tapping into. And at this point, as I was doing my research, I thought to myself, Nagata almost sounds like a Japanese Roger Corman. He has some similarities. Daie definitely kind of dipped. Again, I could, I didn't remember what it was called, but um, I actually, off the top of my head, I don't recall her name, but one of the actresses from The Invisible Man Appears, which you just mentioned, ended up becoming kind of a actor figurehead of that movement for Daie. She was in a lot of those movies, if I recall correctly. It's very Corman-esque. It's very find the trend, get on the trend, market off of the trend, especially when it comes to tapping into youth culture. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what Corman was doing at almost at the same time, weirdly enough. I mean, mm-hmm. Corman got his start doing stuff in the 50s, and he really wrote a lot of counterculture stuff in the 60s all the way up to the 70s. I wrote a kind of a behind-the-scenes blog talking about my process for writing the Godzilla versus Hedera novelization for the GNP. And in that blog, I discussed a film that Corman made called The Trip, which was writing the recent LSD wave of controversy. Mm-hmm. That's a very youth of the time film. And that was a year, I mean, it's obviously years after the stuff we're talking about here, but that's a good example of 
just what a lot of people were doing. Now, the, the difference is that Nagata had an entire studio behind him and more money. And it was, of course, an entire different culture. But it's weird that both Corman and Nagata ended up working with AIP. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. And then obviously, by the time you got to, I guess you could say, Daiei's heyday, although it was kind of the heyday of Japanese cinema period, the 60s, they had several franchises to their name. They had Zatoichi, which we've mentioned, obviously Gamera, and also Daimajin. Yo, that, Daimajin. That wonderful trilogy, which I covered last summer on the Film Vault. You should all go Beautiful. listen to those episodes. And Beautiful films. Beautiful films. Just ignore the fact that Jimmy kept trying to pick a fight with Joy, and which led to a rather hilarious duel where <laughs> he uh, got beat up by Daimajin and had to be saved by Jet. <laughs> that might be one of the highlights of my time here on the island. Oh, I see. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you. I, I'm oh, trying I to bait it. him. I'm trying to bait him. I'm trying to bait him. So he gives, he has to give you the, the Toronto down, but he's, his fingers are quivering over the uh, mic button there. He's yeah. getting close. Yeah, he got it looks close. like he's about to cry. Actually. I'm kind of starting. <laughs> I'm honestly starting I, to well, feel a little bad. He's a, he's a little infamous for crying. And <laughs> Oh man, this is, this is not going today. Nothing is coming up Jimmy today. Let me tell you. Uh, At least you're not triggering his PTSD. I mean, that's good at least. No, no, listen, this is all in good fun. I have standards. I I would love to trust me. I would love to fly out of here on a shiny Pteranodon robot, but I'm not cruel. (laughs) uh, Shiny. Are you going to ask Gamera for some turtle wax? Wow. Cut me wow. some slack. I had to watch Gamera Super Monster and I'm still losing my mind. Yeah, I can I can tell, Nathan. I can I can tell. Anyway, you know what else Dai was doing at this time? Especially in the 50s? Did you know they had their own professional baseball team? Yes, I did. The Dai Stars, which then became the Dai Unions? Mm-hmm. Okay. And they have a new name now. Uh, the Chiba Lot. Uh, Lote? Latte? Uh, Lote? Lote? I, I don't quote me yeah. on that. The Chiba Lote Marines. Yes, indeed. And then we come to the saddest part, December 1971. That's when Daie died. No pun intended. I'm not hitting the button for that one. So they declared yeah. bankruptcy amidst a lot of suspicions and accusations. Oh my gosh, the shady dealings going yeah. on. Um, I mean, there's a lot we could get into, but I guess the big one that I'll mention is the uh, funneling of film f- revenue into <laughs> political contributions. <laughs> Sh- shady, illegal, by the way, political contributions. Sorry, has it they even cooked the books on Gamera versus Zigra? Gamera claiming versus- that they spent more money on Gamera versus Zigra than they actually did. They claimed it was the same budget as Jiger, and having seen both movies very close together, no. No. Now, the, the reason that Jiger looked as good as it did is because Expo 70 threw money at it. Now, the thing that a lot of people don't, I guess, take into consideration, because everybody kind of looks like not everybody i should that's obviously not true but there are a lot of a lot of people that continue to kind of see gamera as a coattail writer of godzilla which in a lot of ways he was but you have to understand that the gamera movies were making bank in the late 60s gamera versus jiger in 1970 was the highest grossing gamera film of all of them they kept beating each other virus was like a huge crazy hit and uh Uh, jimmy's smiling about that yeah, I mean, it's just it's just crazy. I mean, Gamma versus Gauss earned more money than Toho's movies in 1967. Yes, it I did. Mean, it, earned, it earned more money than Son of Godzilla. I mean, and then Giron yeah. earned more than that. 
Well, and then Jager earned more than I that. I mean, it is Son of and Godzilla, then, but oh, I love Son of Godzilla. I'm not. I'm not I don't hate that movie. I'm just, <laughs> yeah, just making it my heart. Joke. Anyway, no, no, but it's it's it, it, so, again what I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, right? Keeping up appearances to the rest of the world and not to the Dia employees that weren't privy to the shenanigans going on behind the scenes. It looked like every movie was earning more money. And 1970 was such a weird watershed moment in Japanese yes. film history anyway. Yeah, that um, was the year that the Japanese film industry crashed, which really is a whole subject unto itself. I toyed with the idea of making that the toku topic. We would have been here yeah. for another two hours. Yeah. I, the problem is that it's a little more difficult than I thought it would be to find information on it. But basically, through a multitude of factors, a lot of it having to do with people moving from urban areas into suburbia and the advent of television and all of that from 1960. 1960 was the peak for Japanese cinema. That was it at its highest production and output by 1970, they lost 75% of their audience. 75% yeah. in a decade. It and was, then it, it all came crashing disaster. down. Complete disaster. And some studios had it better than others. Some studios had it <laughs> yeah, well, worse. Like, uh, think of it like this. There were people, uh, the studios either went out of business because there were several that went out of business. And then other studios found ways to do it. Toho diversified their assets. So they got involved mm -hmm. in things like baseball, real estate, grocery stores, things like that. And you had Nakatsu that had a different way to deal with it. Porn. <sighs> yeah, they, uh, it's, it's basically like you either have to diversify what you do or you have to get very, very specific. And that's what Nikatsu did. And that just shows you how desperate the entire situation yeah. was. Toho had it bad, uh, obviously, because, I mean, A, they were lucky because they had aged Tsuburaya. And he passed that year. Yeah. So now you don't have that. And I mean, the entire Kaijuega genre was also really kind of on its last legs by this point. The mm -hmm. Kaiju boom started in 1966. It peaked in 67, started to peter out in 68, barely made it into 1969, and then just limped into 1970 with mm -hmm. barely, a lot of other, a lot, barely anything. Yeah, a lot of other Japanese film franchises died by the time you got to the 70s. Godzilla managed to keep going until 1975, which is a small miracle, but yeah, but, it's also... I mean, consider, it, consider that 1970 was the first year since 1963 that there was no Godzilla film. Yeah, there was no Godzilla uh, film that year. And, and even then, Toho had Atragon and Matongo out that year, mm -hmm. and the, the only thing they were able to pump out in 1970 was in terms of like Kaiju Ega was space amoeba space amoeba oh yeah that one yeah jimmy and i had awesome movie it's an awesome movie but it's not people don't talk about it that much because oh, it's well, in this weird uh, intermediary period oh we did <laughs> we did well, i mean obviously, the and then obviously jimmy and matt and gratton and i from giant monster bs we had quite the adventure afterward oh yes yeah yeah giant robots giant ro yeah, but, uh, yeah piloting giant robots to break up fights between godzilla and kong probably not the smartest idea no, but it does tend to happen yes. on Monster Island. Yes, it does. Uh, anyway, it so does. yeah, and then the other notable things that we need to mention with 1970, that watershed year, the contract systems at mm -hmm. Japanese film studios all ended. Now, those had ended, I think, a couple decades before this in the United States. So basically all the actors, like the stable of actors that Toho had, they basically all went free agents, hence why the cast in 70s Godzilla movies, radically different than the 60s. <laughs> and then it was so bad. You want to know how bad this was? Akira Kurosawa tried to commit suicide. 
yeah, he tried to take his own life. It's hard to talk about. It. It's it's terrible. I mean, obviously, it's terrible. It, it's it is. I'm glad yeah, he didn't, yeah. obviously. And then oh, oh, I haven't course, seen yeah. this yet, but I have been told that his film, that the film he released that year, his ridiculously depressing, Dodeskaden. Yeah, Dodeskaden, it is a very good movie, but it is not happy. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's it's not a particularly uplifting film. It's, it's a magnificent film, but it's not... Uh, I mean, if, if you're looking for a pick-me-up, I would not yeah. necessarily recommend that one. Yeah, probably not that one. So no. all of that to say, that's the environment that Daae found itself in. So they barely squeezed out Gamera versus Zigra. It's a miracle that film yeah. happened, especially then, considering the money. I mean, that's not how money... like When you make a film, you take the proceeds that that film earns, you pay people, and then you use it to finance the next film and pay all the people that made that film and you release it, and then that money continues the cycle. But Dae decided that that system, nah, we're just going to funnel it into political uh, <laughs> campaigns. Yeah, um, there you go. So even though they went bankrupt in December of 71, they were still involved in a bankruptcy battle into 1972. And then by April of that year, the administrator for the defunct company sued the four executives at the studio, including mm-hmm. Nagata. Yep. For $1.6 million in damages. Yeah, it was nasty. And that was after the next big thing that happened, which was the riot. Yeah, we have to talk about that. Now, that is something that I know I've heard about and read about, but I could not find the places where I heard and read it. (laughs) So, like I said, here's where your brain earns a citation in my show notes. Tell us about this. This stuff has been rattling around in my head for so long that I don't remember where all of the information necessarily comes from. I know you can find a lot of it on like Japanese Wikipedia and places like that, but I couldn't tell you where a lot of the... I must have read it somewhere. This is the true story of what happened with the riot. The reason why it happened, and Zegra plays a part in this because the people who made Zegra were work, working for deferred payments. Mm -hmm. I mean, they did all this work assuming that they were going to get money and then they announced they were bankrupt and they're like, so here's a funny story. We cannot pay you. And here's where this is twofold for me because obviously this made the employees at Daae remarkably teed off and justifiably so. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been particularly happy. These hardworking people were completely justified in being upset. Now, where the line must be drawn is property damage, because that's what it escalated to. After the announcement of the bankruptcy, and it be- after it became clear that the uh, DAE employees were not going to be paid for their work, even though, remember, at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that they signed contracts for an eighth Gamera movie, keeping up appearances, right? It's all good here. We're just going to keep... and Because they were hoping they could fix it behind the scenes or that nobody would notice. And then by the time they did, they wouldn't be in trouble anymore. It doesn't work like that. They kept it to themselves. They basically lied. Well, they definitely lied. No, basically about it. And ultimately what happened was the tensions at the studio due to this decision erupted into a pretty grisly riot, wherein a Nezera horde of, um, (laughs) keeping it topical, a a horde of incredibly, and again, I will say this justifiably angry, Daya employees stormed the studio and began destroying everything and they beat the crud out of things they just smashed things they ripped things up they set fire to things there's some exaggeration about that a lot of people are like oh they burned down Daye. 
that no, there were, I mean, it, no, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but the destruction is not. The amount of material that was destroyed for classic Dye films is uh, astronomical. The loss to film history that mm-hmm. was, Most that happened. Most of the gamma props and suits. Gamma props and suits. Not, and it, the films themselves. The films, the films themselves. themselves. The, there is. Uh, all the records. Of, uh-huh. so, like you may have noticed, listeners, when I'm doing the entertaining info dump, Jimmy and I can't find the actual numbers for the budgets or the box office grosses for these Gamera movies because they were destroyed. Yep. There is no record, for example, of um, how much money Gamera versus Zegra made. It's a mystery. We might never know. They smashed original film materials. They ripped up posters and lobby cards and set them on fire. That's why there aren't a lot of surviving printed materials from the films. Scripts were destroyed and uh, props, costumes, and most tragically of all, if you're a fan of Daikaijuega, they went after the suits. Gamera himself was destroyed. Uh, All the Gamera suits and props, all of the monsters that were still extant at the time and also the and again according to rumor the wyvern suit that was supposed to be for the eighth gamma film there's rumors say that it was completed or at least it was being constructed and if it if that's true it was surely destroyed then in there too there's just so much that was lost so if you see if you get on google and you type in like gamma poster just remember that the fact that you're looking at that or the fact that you can go onto like, you know, an auction website and buy Gamera lobby cards or original things pre-1970 publicity material, it's a miracle that that exists. And one of the reasons that it exists is, once again, uh, when it comes to Gamera, it all, <laughs> it all comes back to thanking Noriaki Yuasa. Yuasa was there and he was among several DIA employees that braved the riot to save this stuff. I'm not exaggerating. The dude put his life on the line. These people were angry and he and several other people at Dye rushed through the people and just grabbed things. So basically almost everything that survives today is something that he and other people there were able to secret away before they could be crushed or burned or ripped or stomped on or anything like that. So you, you also might've ended up feeling that Gamera couldn't be saved in 1980 and allowed Gamera to die, but he also worked to save Gamera. I mean, could you imagine being there and just seeing people ruining your work, just destroying it? Jeez, that would be terrifying. Uh, uh, just unbelievable. And, Actually, um, I take it back. Sometimes I feel like that here on the island. Hmm. Yeah. That's why I said this, in many ways, it really is. <laughs> it just occurred to me, you could, uh, you could get all Edgar Allan Poe about this. This is the fall of the House of Dye. It really is. There, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Fall of the House of Dye. From... Catapulting Kurosawa to international stardom to literally burning down. Yeah. So figuratively I mean, and literally burning down. Lit- yeah. 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 I mean, it's so this is uh, one quick story that I will share. My friend Robert Montserrat, who is my longtime partner in crime, lover of kaiju, and the artist I worked with when um, he and I translated the Shigeru Kayama Godzilla novelization into English last year, he was at I don't remember which G-Fest it was, many years ago when Carl Craig was there. Mm-hmm. And Carl Craig, if you have the, obvi- obviously Carl Craig played Jimmy, some guy some guy named Jimmy <laughs> uh, in Gamera versus Virus. And oh, he- You're baiting him hard, I can tell. He's Yeah, he, uh, it's, he went, this is, this, went, I'm getting, cl- we're getting close to the end. This is almost my last chance. So <laughs> Jimbo, little Jimbo, was able to keep one of the alien ray guns and his script from Gamera versus Virus and take it home with him. And if you have the Arrow Gamera set, 
there's a little featurette where he shows that stuff off, but he actually brought that stuff to G-Fest and my buddy Robert got to see those props up close. And if I'm remembering correctly, did get to hold the gun. Now, if that gun and that script had been in Daae in 1970, it would have been destroyed. So again, I cannot emphasize enough that whenever you see an original piece of camera memorabilia or art or promotional material or, or props at all, you're looking at an actual miracle. Yeah. That stuff, by all intents and purposes, should not exist based on what happens. So there's just so little left. Anything that does survive is a treasure. It mm-hmm. really is. Yeah, it really is. And then we come to, as you hinted at earlier in today's broadcast, when Dae at least attempted to rise from the ashes in the summer of 74. Thanks to newspaper publisher Yasuyoshi Tokuma. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. Dae now had four subsidiaries, one of which dealt exclusively with distribution, a second with production, and then the other two were the studios that were operated in Tokyo and Kyoto. And there was also an affiliated company called Toko Tokuma Company, which specialized in importing Chinese films to Japan. Mm-hmm. Wonder if they distributed the Bruce Lee movies. I bet they it's did. Possible. They also distributed Japanese movies to China. Ah, there you go. Yes, so it was a two-way street. Ah, there you go. And then the studio produced eight movies after its revival through 1978. Only eight. Eight, eight movies. Uh, one of them was, and I've never heard of this, it was an occult thriller called Yoba, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. co-produced by Nagata. <laughs> and according to the source that I looked at it, they say, quote, a man obviously unfazed by all his legal uncertainties and for whom supposed offenses appeared to be lacking substance end quote, and it was distributed by Shojiku, which we kind of talked about a little bit, Yep. which ironically was the studio that Nagata worked for 43 years earlier. That was the company that he basically was, he's like, ah, I don't need you guys. I'm out of here. He walked out on them to form Daya, and they were the ones that ended up getting their movies into theaters, uh, which is another weird wrinkle in the story. Even Zegra wasn't technically released by Daya. No, Dainichi, it wasn't. They had to do Dainichi Films to get that film out. Yeah, and that was I it. talked about that. Yeah, in the last yeah. episode. And then in the years since then, it gets a little less interesting after that. They continued to make some movies, not very many. And some of them were big budget spectaculars, like something called The Go Masters in 1982. He's a trilogy. And for me, a movie that I love dearly, the, a little art house movie called Shall We Dance? I love that movie. And then Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Pulse. I guess that is Kurosawa's son? I guess. Uh, no relation. No relation. That's kind of no relation. Different Kurosawa. I bet he wrote that for a while, though. (laughs) (laughs) Also a very, very talented director. And then a name that I'm pretty sure you're going to start hearing a heck of a lot more on this podcast. But Takashi Miike in a movie called Dead or Alive that they helped produce. Heck yeah, Takashi Miike. Love that dude. Mm -hmm. And then we come to, I guess you could say, modern Daie, but it's not really. After Tokuma died, Daie was sold to Katakawa, which is actually a publishing company. Katakawa mm-hmm. Shoten Publishing. In November 2002, Maihiko Katakawa, who was the chairman of the publishing company, announced that Daie Film would merge with them and become their own film division, which is why they are now <laughs> Katakawa Pictures. That's right. They were briefly Katakawa Daie. Yes, I see uh, that. That did not last. Notes. That did mm-hmm. not last. So mm-hmm. they are just Katakawa Pictures. Yeah, they that only the, lasted for like a couple of years. Yeah, they dropped the name in 2004. Yes. So there you go. It's the rise, the fall, the sort of rise, the, and then I guess another fall, and then another rise. I guess it's rise, wave riding, downfall, sort of rebirth, downfall, 
slight revival, and then absorption. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's such a weird story. It's unlike any other Japanese studio. They've gone through such a wild ride. I mean, Toho has had its ups and downs, but it's been fairly consistent. Tsuburaya had kind of a weird, wild ride. I mean, at a certain point, they they only had like a few employees. They were very close to being yeah. out of the business. And <laughs> now they're partly owned by Bandai. Yeah, you know? Bandai so that, saved them. <laughs> And now they're making everyone happy. They're Tokusatsu Santa Claus. They really, really are. Oh my gosh. All right, we have wrapped things up. And as usual, Danny, <laughs> having you on leads to extended episodes. <laughs> Listen, man, there was more to talk about around the movie, I think, than about the actual movie. Basically. But I think it needed to be said. I don't know how your mental capacity is, oh, is doing right now. Uh, I, I, feel like... I think frayed would be a good way to put it. Well, frayed implies that there's something left. I don't think there's anything. Yeah, I think that's. I, I mean, think it's I've just air. Got, in there I've still right got now. at least two brain cells to rub together. Well, I mean, you you are forming words slash cohesive sentences, but your <laughs> eyes are looking a little glassy. A little bloodshot too, kind of like the show of Gamera props, you know, because I swear Gamera looked like he was, he always had bloodshot eyes that he must've been on drugs. He was on drugs all that time, man. But he then again, sleep. but then again, when you're working at a dying studio, eh. gotta do something, right? <laughs> Maybe that's where some of the extra dying money yeah. was being funneled. Yeah. And miraculously, I'm, I'm seeing that uh, there's no board propaganda. But then again, they've already been wrecking me all day by having to watch Super Monster Gamera. So I think that's propaganda enough. So we're going to move on before I suddenly get to Momo that they want to keep talking. I spoke too soon, listeners. Hmm. I didn't have any propaganda at that moment from the board, but they did tell me in the interim when I was getting this broadcast ready for the podcast that I did a poor job editing it for the patrons on MIFV Max because some of the music and sound effects wasn't edited properly and yeah they made sure to let me know about that it wasn't for this episode it was for episode 45 yeah because I was working on that when this was broadcast. So they told me in no uncertain terms on Twitter that I had screwed up, and now I am issuing an official apology to all of you for screwing that up. I'm sorry. Can we move on now? And now I'm going to get to some quick listener feedback because we have a little letter here that's been sitting in my inbox for a little while from Kyoe Toshi, the listener to all Kaiju and Tokusatsu podcasts in existence. That's true. And also <laughs> someone who knows more about Godzilla Singular Point than anyone else in existence other than oh people who worked gosh. on it. Oh my gosh. What an amazing ride following Kyohei's Twitter account has been. Every time a post goes up, my mind is blown. Thank you, Kyohei. Oh my gosh. Yes. Such a cool thing to be doing. Mm -hmm. So she wrote in a little email here that says, Hello, Nathan. There was only one missile shot at the end of Gamera versus Giron. It hits Giron's blade and is cut in two, with Gamera catching one and the other blowing up Flobella. And it is Flobella, not Florbella. And she... Writes out the Japanese for that, both in kanji and in romaji, which she says is pronounced like Flobella, 
The U at the end of most syllables is usually barely voiced. And as always, Japanese R is a mixture of English R and L. So thank you very much for that little bit of education. I am a little astonished that I didn't pick up on that when I I watched the movie the first time. But then weirdly enough, with that in mind, I caught it during its repeat. Yeah, the rerun here in Gamera Super Monster. So here's a question. What version or release of Gamera versus Giron did you watch for the episode? Because some versions, like the older American cuts, the VHS versions, it's kind of hard to see because they kind of crop out the missile being cut. I watched the original Japanese cut, my friend. Okay, then you you have no excuse. I know. I have no excuse. (laughs) Now, my guests got to watch the MST3K episode, so maybe it it was edited out for them. But I didn't get to watch that because... Nate, the board hates my sanity. All right, Nate, deep breaths, deep breaths. You finished Gamma Super Monster. You really look like the world is ending right now, bud. Are you you okay? Well, now I can get a little bit of that energy out, that rage that is building in me, because now we have to do the Patreon shoutouts. Go show Travis Alexander! Michael Hamilton, Eli Harris, Chris Cook, Bex from Redeemed, Otaku, Damon Noyes, The Cellcast, Tofu Fury, me. <laughs> you know, now I just feel a little more tired. Because yeah, that was this... I don't bust announcer guy out that often. That was fun. Yeah, uh, but I'm I'm worn out. I could barely muster the energy to do that, and that's normally one of my favorite segments. I mean, we even got a new patron. That's the amazing part. We have new patrons. More members of MIFE Max. More people in your little community, Danny. And not even that amazing news can repair the damage that Gamera Super Monster has done to your mind. Nope. You or my really, body. You really or do my look soul. a dejected, man. Yeah. Wow. This was a lot of Gamera all back to back. I love these movies a lot, but I mean, I, I get the sense you're about done with show of Gamera. Oh, Would I be correct? I am very done with show of Gamera. Well, that's the good news because uh, you know what's coming up next, right? Huh? My brain's so fried I don't remember anymore. All right. Work with me here, man. Pull up Wikizilla in your brain. Look at the Gamera movie listings. Original Gamera, Barugan, Gauss. And then we uh-huh. go to virus uh-huh. and then you're following along with me. Yeah. Giron, Jiger, Zegra, uh-huh. uh-huh. super monster. Uh-huh. And then a guardian of the universe. Guardian of the universe is Yay! next dude. I made it. They tried to break me and I made it. I made it to the fall. I made it to the Heisei trilogy. They get good. They finally get good. Holy Listen, crap, they I, finally get I good. He- I, I get to the 90s. I get to Shusuke Kaneko, who I've met. And then, and then like, actual characters and actual stakes. And and this is going to be amazing. The, the era Gamera is finally looking up. It's two episodes away. But it's looking up. Take that, Bard. Take that. Yeah, yeah, definitely decaf for you for the foreseeable <clears throat> future. Listen, yes. man, I am. And you a know what? Huge, I am so happy. You know a, what I'm going to do? I am going to bring back the original crew. You know, Joe and Nick and Joy and all of them. Uh, Tim, I'm bringing them all back. If I can, I'm going to bring them all back because they need to see this trilogy. I bring them back for the important movies. This is one of them. 
Actually, this whole trilogy is one of them. None of them have ever seen this trilogy, and I already think they're going to love it. There's so many reasons for them to love it. These movies transcend the genre as far as I care, especially the movie three. Whew. <laughs> yes. Yes. I anyway, think you are... Um... <laughs> we could we could dote over those movies all day. No, we got to rein ourselves in and you have to save so... that stuff for the actual episode. Yes, I've been reinvigorated, so thank you. But actually, like I said, that's two episodes from now. Our actual next episode will be... Uh, another wonderful thing we will be getting back to godzilla godzilla redux that will be going on once again and this time we will be looking at godzilla king of the monsters 1956 yeah 2019 i already did 2019 now we're doing mm -hmm. 1956 and i will be joined by the host of kaiju conversation elijah thomas who has made it known to me that he is going to make the argument that that is the better movie wow that's a take that is, uh, have you not heard from Elijah? He is the king of hot takes. He is the littlest gatekeeper in this fandom. <laughs> Listen, nothing's going to touch the original Gojira. That film is outstanding. But I will die on the King of the Monsters 56 is fantastic hill. Not just because it's nostalgic for me. That's how I found the movie. And that's how a lot of people saw it the first time. Just because I genuinely appreciate how they made it again it's not a perfect film but i think it has a lot to offer there's more to it than it just being like a bonus feature on a blu-ray you know it's a huge piece of history yeah. so i'm gonna be excited to listen to that one yes yes indeed well remarkably jimmy only got to three i'm shocked yeah i'm also shocked and honestly i'm kind of glad because the longer that went i started to feel bad being kind of weirdly competitive like that is just not me so uh listen jimbo I can still call you Jimbo, right? Good. You see, Jimbo, that's not really who I am. For all I know, you had a good reason for leaving me for dead over the Pacific. And listen, I'm still not thrilled about it, obviously, but I accept your apology. There's so much dissension in this world right now. We don't need any more friendships being broken up. So I accept your apology, and uh, I hope you accept mine. What do you say, bud? Well, I'm glad to hear that. And you know what else? Psych! Oh, that no. was your last strike. Oh, no. You're okay. Sure. All kidding aside, Jimbo, Jimbo, I really do feel bad. You don't have to give me the robot if you don't want to. It is completely up to you. That was a low blow. I admit it. The final decision rests with you. You may keep it. You may give it to me. For realsies, what do you think? Wow. Are, are you sure, dude? Huh. I mean, wow. That's. I actually was expecting you to say no. I was, I was honestly, I mean, the... I was just messing with you. If, if Are you sure you really, you're going to let me take this thing and you're going to let me fly it home and keep it? Wow. Hot dang. That's the nicest thing I've seen him do in a long time. Jimmy, now, this is why we're friends, man. I, uh, wow. I can't thank you enough. I am the proud owner of a flying Pteranodon. Wow. Well, it's a flying Pteranodon robot. The, only, flying problem Pteranodon is, robot. I, the only problem is, is I think you're going to be kept here on the island for, I think, at least an extra 24 hours filling out the paperwork. Have fun with that. <laughs> Listen, if the end result Godzilla is me getting the shiny new keys to a shiny new Pteranodon robot, I'll sit here for 48 hours. Well, <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy, can I take it for a test drive? Yes. All right. I'm going to come over there and get the keys. Nate. What do I need to do before I leave? Uh, you need to, we need to do shameless self-promotion. Shameless self-promotion? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I almost forget that. Hey, y'all, my name's Daniel DeManna. I am the creator, as Nate 
mentioned at the beginning of the episode of the Godzilla Novelization Project, an ongoing creative endeavor on my part to, over time, serialize, write, and share full-length novelizations of every single Godzilla film and allow fans like yourselves to read them 100% free. This is a labor of love. I've been at it for nearly three years now. I have a lovely, wonderful, very supportive, very vocal group of readers that has come up and formed around this project. And I'm so thankful for all of them that have allowed me to go on this really amazing journey and and celebrate Godzilla in a way that hasn't really been done that much via prose adaptations of the films. If you want to read the books for themselves as the chapters come out one chapter at a time, you can go to GodzillaNovelizationProject.com. If you'd like to talk to me about the books or tell me what your favorite Godzilla movie is or just chat with me in general, hit me up on Twitter, Danzilla93 underscore GNP. You can also message, follow, whatever you do on Facebook, the uh, the Facebook page for the Godzilla Novelization Project. There is a tab on the website that has all of the communication stuff and all the contact stuff if you want to email me. You can also leave comments on the website. If you really like what you read and you're uh, willing to part with some of your hard-earned money, this is the part that I always hate doing. I hate asking people for money. I do have a Patreon account where I have a nice, loyal group of followers, that, uh, including my man Jimmy and you, Nate, who make this project possible and allow me to get research material and take time off of work to make these books faster and to make them better. I have a lot of big plans for the future. By the time this episode is in all of your ear holes, the Godzilla Novelization Project will have a brand new short story celebrating 60 years of the original Mothra, uh, which I'm incredibly excited to share with all of you. I I hope everybody is enjoying it. But yeah, that's pretty awesome. I have other things going on. I mean, you can hear me on a bunch of other kaiju podcasts. You can hear me voice acting in an episode of Godzilla Unmade. You can read the translation of the original Godzilla novelization that I mentioned earlier that Robert Montserrat and I worked on and see his beautiful illustrations by going to projectkayama.com to support him and, uh, and us in our collaboration. But yeah, other than that, shoot me a message. Stay happy, stay safe, stay positive. That's it. I'm done. I'm out of here. Good night, everybody. I'll be here not much longer. In fact, I'm getting up right now. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been fun. Gamera Super Monster Forever. Your boy Danny is out. I am taking off. A Pteranodon robot awaits. Love you guys. Thanks for having me. Peace out. Wait. Hold on. Wait. What are you doing? What? See you later, man. It's time. Pteranodon robot away. Oh. Dang, Navit. Uh, what do I do now? Uh, dead air. Do I just want to end it? Uh, what do I do? I uh, 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 what's that, Jimmy? Uh, okay, fine. I've been dodging it all day. Fine. Fine. I get it. You've had Kalara on hold for an hour, and she's been. Busy breaking up a puppy mill. I get it. Fine, fine. Put her on the line. We'll get this interview over and done with. What the? Oh, no. She hung up. We kept her on hold for so long that she had to go off and, I don't know, save a kitten from a tree or something and add it to her pet shop and then go teach kids electric organ or something. I'm sorry, listeners, but uh, I guess we won't be hearing from one of Miss Perkins' favorite superheroes. Not that I thought she was all that effective as a superhero anyway. You have Miss Perkins on the phone, and she's not happy. 
Of course she's not. All right, fine. Tell her that we'll reschedule the interview for when we do the next Year of Gamera episode. Regardless, Jimmy, cue credits already. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter where our handle is at TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and the Monster Island Board of Directors at Monster Isla BOD. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations! And be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Twitch. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive Live Edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack Battle with the Colossus and The Open Way Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!